Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage all the way to the we-just-hit-a-million-orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash specialoffer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash specialoffer. Good morning. Good morning. So happy to get in trouble, but... You look fantastic. Thanks. You say you, you said that fantastic. to me when I was walking in, and you know, every every once in a while, what did you a, say ma- to me? A, ma- a tired mom needs to hear that. What did you say when I said, "I don't know how you walk in those shoes"? What and I said? said, "I don't either. <laughs> I don't know, guys. Do I those, think I might change my shoes by the end of the show." Do, do those? I, I'm always fascinated because there are shoes that don't leave the office, right? They're These just, don't leave. No, you don't walk These in. These don't leave. The Wait. Okay. Room. Yes, I know. They're right. my I wish I was 30 again heels. <laughs> but you, you know, thank you, Boo. So I feel you. like we're, we're you always look dapper. We're just going to church for Easter. Wanna or go I to brunch? Like, I feel like a southern I live down south and the Have a fancy brunch sick. after the show. We'll have a mint julep. Yum. How about that? Okay, all right. We're so glad you're with us today. Caitlin is off. Let's get started with the five things to know for this Friday, April 21st. 2023, President Joe Biden set to run again. Sources tell CNN it will be official as soon as next week, with Tuesday being the day eyed for the official launch. We could be just hours away from learning the fate of an abortion pill. The Supreme Court has a midnight deadline to decide if Mifepristone will stay widely available. Also, charges against actor Alec Baldwin about to be dismissed in that deadly shooting on the set of his movie, Rust. Special prosecutor said new evidence in the case led to this decision. We'll update you on that. Also, Canadian police investigating a heist. $15 million in gold and other valuables taken from the airport. The thieves still on the run. And what's next for Elon Musk and SpaceX after the historic Starship launch got off to a good start before this explosive end? We'll discuss if this is what success actually looks like. Sin in this morning starts right now. So Biden's going to do it. He's going to run again. I know, but this is like the longest, like, I'm going to do it, I'm going to do it, I'm going to do it. Who did this? Somebody else did this. I can't remember. I don't know. Yeah, I can't remember. But we'll see. His polling is good. He has good new polling this morning. His polling is better. Better. Yeah. Good point. It's getting better. In the right direction. In the right direction, yes. We'll talk about all of that because as we've learned overnight, President Biden is getting ready to officially announce his, he is running for re-election next week. Sources tell CNN the president's team is planning to drop a campaign-style video announcement on Tuesday. That day is significant because it will mark the four-year anniversary of Biden entering the 2020 race. A new poll from the Associated Press, this is what we were just talking about, it shows only 47% of Democrats want Biden to run again, but look at that, it's improved from 30%, 37% of the same group that said that 
in January. Arla Sainz is at the White House with more. He loves, um, you know, moments, right, marking history, marking anniversary. So it would make sense for this to come on Tuesday. Yeah, good morning, Poppy. President Biden uh, really relies a lot on symbolism when he gives his speeches. And so that Tuesday, a possibility for announcement really falls in line with much of his mantra. And for months now, the president has been indicating that he intends to run for president, but it appears that those plans are finally being set into motion. His team has been working behind the scenes to uh, sketch out a campaign apparatus. And now they are eyeing that, uh, launching that campaign with a video, possibly as soon as Tuesday, which is four uh, years to the day that he launched his last campaign, which he has billed as a battle for the soul of the nation. Now, this uh, expected announcement would, would put to rest months of speculation about whether or not he would run again. We've learned that the president has settled on Wilmington, Delaware as his campaign headquarters, but we're still waiting to hear a bit more of the details about what this campaign will look like. But one thing advisors are really keen to get the ball rolling on is fundraising. Uh, announcing early in April would allow him to start mobilizing grassroots and high dollar donors. Uh, we know that the, the team has invited top donors and fundraisers from President Biden's last campaign to meet with him here in Washington next Friday as they gear up for a very, very expensive race. Yeah, a very expensive one. What about the other part of this new poll this morning? 78% of Democrats approve of the job Biden's doing. What should we take from that? Well, mobilizing those types of Democrats will be key to President Biden's reelection. The president has long felt that his legislative agenda is something Democrats should be proud of when it comes to infrastructure, health care and climate change. But in additionally, he's also felt buoyed after Democrats stronger than expected performance during the midterm. But it's not just Democrats that President Biden will need to run over if he is going to win a second term. He's going to have to reach out to those moderates, also independent voters, especially as he heads into a possible mass matchup with former President Donald Trump, who was his main rival back in 2020. Arlette, thank you very much. We'll wait for Tuesday, see if it officially comes. And Thanks. hours from now, the suspect accused of shooting a six-year-old neighbor and her parents in North Carolina will appear in court. 24-year-old Robert Lewis Singletary turned himself into authorities over 500 miles away. He was in Florida on Thursday. The shooting happened after a basketball rolled into Singletary's yard on Tuesday angering him and allegedly leading to Singletary opening fire outside, wounding six-year-old Kinsley White and her parents. Now, Kinsley's mother told CNN that doctors removed bullet fragments from her cheek. Her father remains hospitalized. Later today, special prosecutors in New Mexico will drop involuntary manslaughter charges against Alec Baldwin for the deadly Rust film set shooting. A year and a half ago, you'll remember, Baldwin was rehearsing with a prop gun on set when it fired off. It killed the film's cinematographer, Helena Hutchins. It hurt director Joel Souza. A source familiar with the investigation tells CNN prosecutors are dropping the charges because evidence shows someone modified that gun. Our Chloe Moloss is with us now with all of this reporting. We all remember your interview with Alec Baldwin. We all remember when he said to you that he didn't pull the trigger. Now this. That is what he has maintained all along, and this is explosive. It is not what people were expecting, but this is something that his legal team has been working on diligently. Take a listen. So my only question is, am I being charged with something? 
Alec Baldwin no longer accused after New Mexico prosecutors made a stunning announcement Thursday. Quote, new facts were revealed that demand further investigation and forensic analysis. We therefore will be dismissing the involuntary manslaughter charges against Mr. Baldwin to conduct further investigation. Baldwin reacted on Instagram, posting a photo of his wife, saying, quote, I owe everything I have to this woman and to you, Luke, his attorney. You were in the room when the lady when someone was, was shot? holding the gun, yeah. Baldwin admitted to holding the gun that fired a bullet, killing Helena Hutchins, the cinematographer on Baldwin's film Rust, but told police he did not know he was handed a loaded gun. Baldwin resumes filming on Rust this week, with production moved to Montana. This was Baldwin last year. Someone is responsible for what happened, and I can't say who that is, but I know it's not me. The dismissal is a win for Baldwin's legal team, which challenged the motives and politics of one of the original prosecutors. It doesn't matter if he's a, a liberal Democrat and I'm a conservative Republican. Um, my job's always been to prosecute crime. In February, Baldwin's lawyers filed a motion to remove special prosecutor Andrea Reeb, who at the time of the investigation was running for state representative in New Mexico. In an email later revealed in the New York Times, Reeb suggested being involved in the case, quote, might help in my campaign. Both Reeb and the district attorney who hired her ultimately recused themselves. Their replacements dropped the charges against Baldwin, his attorneys saying they, quote, encourage a proper investigation into the facts and circumstances of this tragic accident. Is there live animal that's kept on set? No. Never. The film's weapons handler, Hannah Gutierrez-Reed, is now the sole defendant in the case, facing 18 months for involuntary manslaughter. Her attorney says she will plead not guilty and that, quote, we fully expect at the end of this process that Hannah will also be exonerated. Are we really supposed to feel bad about you, Mr. Baldwin? Helena Hutchins' husband has been a vocal critic of Baldwin, saying he should face charges. The idea that the person holding the gun causing it to discharge is not responsible is absurd to me. But now, justice for Helena Hutchins moves forward without a star defendant. And she was great at her job, and she died. And she died. And that's, that hurts me every day. So the special prosecutor coming out saying that this is, you know, temporary, potentially, that they are dismissing the charges against Alec Baldwin for now, pending a further investigation, interviewing, re-interviewing more witnesses. Because remember, like I just said, there is that new special prosecutor. And then Hannah Gutierrez, Reed's attorney, coming out saying that they hope that this means that she, too, the armorer, will be exonerated as well. And they're quiet as of now. Um, Alec Baldwin and his wife, Hilaria, usually as of now, and they're just waiting to see what happens next, right, if it's dismissed, because it's dismissed now um, without prejudice, and they're we'll waiting hear, for I think we'll hear from prejudice. him sooner than you think, but yeah. for now, he's posted on Instagram. Good. Good. Okay. Good. Thank Thanks. you, Chloe. Thank you. Good to see you. So live pictures now, the sunrise. My goodness, the sun comes up early now. This is sunrise in Washington, D.C. this morning. Look at the Capitol. It looks beautiful. That's where President Biden is facing growing pressure from fellow Democrats to negotiate with the House Speaker Kevin McCarthy on raising the debt limit to prevent a financial disaster. Kevin McCarthy has proposed huge spending cuts and slashing major parts of Biden's agenda in exchange for lifting the debt ceiling. It's setting up a high-stakes showdown that could tank the economy. Senior Congressional Correspondent Lauren Fox, live on Capitol Hill this morning. Lauren, good morning to you. The president has been adamant that he wants a debt limit raise with no strings attached. 
Yeah, that's exactly right. But what he's starting to hear from some members of his own party, many members who are up for re-election this next cycle, Don, is the fact that they want to see some negotiations, that they are starting to believe it may not be tenable for the president to hold this position, that he wants just a clean increase of the debt ceiling. The argument coming from some of them, why doesn't he sit down once again with House Speaker Kevin McCarthy? What you heard this week from Joe Manchin, a moderate Democrat from the state of West Virginia, weighing whether or not he's going to run for re-election again in this next cycle is that while he doesn't agree with every part of the Republican plan to increase the debt ceiling, he does argue it's the only bill right now that's actually moving through Congress. I also caught up yesterday with Josh Gottheimer. He is a moderate Democrat. Here's what he told me. I think it's critically important that now ever that, that both sides sit down. The idea that we would ever default is, is, has to be off the table, and we can have a serious conversation about our fiscal health and our fiscal future. We should, but the idea that you would pay any politics, any you know, that you would play, play Russian roulette with the fiscal health of the country and the fa full faith in the credit of the United States is totally unacceptable. And pressure is going to mount next week. That is when House Republican leaders are going to bring their debt ceiling proposal to the floor for a vote. They're feeling very confident that they are going to be able to get their conference in line. We're going to get a sense next week whether or not that's the case. Don? So, Lauren, is it a vocal minority of Democrats calling for Biden to negotiate? Does a majority of his party still support his stance? Yeah, definitely. A majority is standing by the president. In fact, yesterday, our colleague Manu Raju caught up with Chuck Schumer, the majority leader in the Senate, and he just repeated over and over again, clean, 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 arguing that the debt ceiling should not be attached to any spending cuts, that if there is going to be a debate about the fiscal future of this country, it should be in the appropriations process and not when it comes to just raising the country's borrowing limit, Don. All right. Lauren Fox on Capitol Hill. Thank you, Lauren. It is today, deadline day. The Supreme Court could decide on the fate of a very common, widely used abortion drug called mifepristone. On Wednesday, Justice Samuel Alito extended an administrative stay on a lower court ruling that would have limited access to that medication, giving the courts more time to think about it. That extension expires tonight, just before midnight. At the heart of this issue is the scope of the FDA's authority to regulate the drug, which has already been deemed safe and effective by the medical community. Millions of women across the country have used it for more than 20 years. If the Supreme Court upholds the lower court ruling, here's what could change. The window to obtain the drug would narrow to seven weeks. Dosages would change. In-person visits to a doctor would be required. No more virtual visits to get it. A doctor would need to prescribe and administer the drug. And the generic version of the drug may no longer be available. So a lot of changes on the table. House Democrats vowing to protect access to it, including Democratic Whip Catherine Clark. You saw her just on this show yesterday. Here's what she told us. We can look at putting people on record here in Congress, bringing, forcing these votes on the floor to make sure that we are putting everyone on record on where they stand, on making women second-class citizens in this country. One option is, is to have the FDA go through the process again for this drug. If they do that. If the drug is ultimately sent back to the FDA to sort of start over again for reapproval, we should note the FDA typically has 10 months to review an application. If new data is needed, if they need to do new trials, that would take years.
So SpaceX's Starship rocket, the most powerful ever built, exploded minutes after liftoff. I had no idea. I was texting everyone. I was like, did it? Did the rocket explode? I know. I was surprised. But yeah. then Elon Musk is sort of like, this is Saying, success. Yeah. So we're going to talk about what went wrong during the unmanned test flight and what Elon Musk says went right as well. Yeah. And uh, speaking of Elon Musk, a new era of Twitter has begun. Removing legacy blue check marks from some of the world's most prominent users, including the Pope, who got to keep their check mark ahead. And somehow I lost my blue check, but Jimmy Fallon got to keep his blue check. I guess it means he's the only real Jimmy now. I don't know. Guess who else still has a check mark? You ready for this? OJ got to keep his check mark. More CNN this morning to come after the break. Was icing on the cake. Yeah, so I was a little confused by yesterday. I'll, I'll explain when we'll have Sarah in just a minute. But uh, <laughs> that was SpaceX's Starship rocket lifting off and then exploding during yesterday's test flight. Musk called it an exciting test and said his team learned a lot for the next time. It was just part of a, an eventful week for Elon Musk. In addition to that, his car company, Tesla, saw its stock plunge yesterday after reported lower profit margins and further, or I should say, excuse me, future price cuts for some of its models. Musk also facing backlash for his decision to remove legacy blue check marks from Twitter accounts as a way to get people to pay for the mark. So with us now, CNN's media analyst, as I told you, Axios media reporter, Sarah Fisher. Good morning, good morning, good morning. Good morning. I'm good doing morning. well. Okay, let's get to, uh, to business. What do you, should you want to do rocket first or do you want to do... I want to know why it's a success that the rocket blew up. Okay, let's do rocket first. Yeah, let's because I was, I had gone to the doctor and I didn't know, so I wasn't plugged in. And then I saw someone sent me just a picture of the rocket and I said, did the rocket explode? What happened? Because I was getting yes. Challenger vibes. It's unmanned, right? But yeah, but they're saying it was successful. Well, the big thing about this rocket is it's absolutely massive and it's really heavy. So you need a lot of energy to be able to propel it up into the sky. And I think what they consider a success is the fact that they got it off the ground and that it was live up for about four to five minutes. The other thing that makes it successful is that obviously nobody was hurt. There was no damages that was reported. Sometimes when you're putting a rocket ship <clears> into the air, the debris can come. It can cause damages. The FAA is responsible for overseeing that and making sure that nothing goes wrong from that end. And nothing did go wrong from that end. So I can see why Elon Musk and his team is saying that this was a great learning experiment because that's really what it was. Yeah. Well, I just keep thinking about how much everyone costs that explodes for yes. them. But talk about the week for Musk. So also Elon Musk with a lot of news on Tesla this week also took away our blue check marks. I'm not going to pay for one. There's a lot going on with Musk this week. So much. And you know what struck me? You can listen to Elon Musk on an earnings call for Tesla, which is a publicly traded company, so they have to inform their investors every quarter about what's happening. And he sounds so measured. Talking about the company's profits plunge, he was saying that a lot of it has to do with macroeconomic factors. People still aren't buying cars at the same clip as they were pre-pandemic. Of course, the pandemic hit the supply chain in certain ways, which made manufacturing more difficult, et cetera. But at the same time, that very measured businessman can do some very erratic things that causes us 
to be very confused. And the latest example of that, of course, was Musk ripping the blue check marks away. He said that if you're not paying to remain verified on Twitter, that you're not going to keep your blue check. But what was so weird is that he said that he was unilaterally going to pay for some people to keep their blue checks, which to me defies the entire well, Who did point. he pay for? So he said that he paid for Stephen King, <laughs> uh, William Shatner, the actor, and LeBron James. And all three of them, by the way, had publicly stated that they wouldn't pay to remain verified. Musk yeah. just said that, oh, I'm going to do it myself. I thought that was a little hypocritical because he criticized the old verification system for sort of subjectively letting some people be verified. In him choosing three people to pay to be verified, he is subjectively choosing to have people be verified. This is a weird thing. Like, after like, Twitter's been around for so long, like, you know what LeBron's official account is. And I think someone, I think I've lost mine, but people know my account already. So, does it really? I, mean, I think verification matters because when there's an emergency situation, if yeah. there's a school shooting, if there's a natural disaster, people want to go to Twitter and find authoritative voices to know yeah. what's going on. And that might be a journalist, but it also might be an yeah. emergency response unit in a local town, a mayor, et cetera. And so if those accounts aren't verified and they are easily spoofed, that could be an okay. issue. All right. Before you go, you have a great new piece this morning. BuzzFeed News. Shutting down. Didn't they win it? Was it a Pulitzer? They did. They won their first Pulitzer in 2021, and they've done a lot of great reporting. In fact, a lot of the stuff that we've talked about with TikTok, that stemmed from a BuzzFeed News investigation into the ways that China is accessing user data. So it's a very sad time. But broadly speaking, it speaks to how challenging it is to be surviving in the news environment right now. The ad market is slowing down dramatically. And so BuzzFeed News isn't the only one feeling pressure. Insider, which is another digital media company, announced 10% layoffs yesterday. I've been covering media companies doing layoffs all year. It's just a really hard time right now. Yeah, that's a, but also, too, I mean, people are desperate for clicks, and so they're writing more things that are a little more... Clicky? Clicky, a little more clickbaity well, because that's, they want the eyes. When BuzzFeed launched, it was revolutionary because at the yeah. time, in 2006, a lot of traditional media companies were just copy-pasting their long, long articles and putting them online. And BuzzFeed said, this isn't working. Like, we need to create online-specific content. So from that regard, they kind of started an entire internet revolution, and I give them a ton of credit I, for that. Yes. Yeah. But at the same time, to your point, Don, once everyone else followed that strategy, it became such a saturated market now we're moving back into an era where quality really counts. And that's why you see a lot of news companies launching today focused on hiring really, really high-end reporters. I'm glad you said that, because a lot of companies that people felt were credible are writing sensational things. And to go back to that sort of journalism would be great. Hiring really great yeah. reporters like uh, Sarah Fisher. Like Sarah Fisher. Wasn't that Ben Smith was BuzzFeed? Was that Ben? Yes. Yeah, ben. it was Ben. Yeah. Thanks, now he's Sarah. semaphore. Thank you very much, Sarah. Appreciate it. Uh, ahead, a CNN exclusive report. New evidence shows a Russian mercenary group has been supplying Sudan's forces with heavy weapons to aid their fight against the country's army. What our team has uncovered ahead. <clears throat> New this morning, Sudan's warring factions have declared a 72-hour ceasefire. After almost a week of fighting, the country's paramilitary rapid support forces made the announcement on Twitter early today, local time, adding the truce coincides with the Muslim holiday marking the end of Ramadan to, quote, open humanitarian corridors to evacuate citizens and give them the opportunity to greet their families. Now, Sudan's military leader delivered these remarks Friday morning, but did not mention the truce. 
Battles between the RSF and its rival, the Sudan Armed Forces, have left 330 people, at least 330 people dead, forced tens of thousands of people to flee the country. Yesterday, the Defense Department announced the United States military will be deploying, quote, additional capabilities near Sudan. Here's what the National Security Council spokesperson, John Kirby, said about President Biden's role in this decision. He's been uh, obviously uh, uh, following this very, very closely, the events uh, in Khartoum uh, and in Sudan. He authorized the military to move forward with pre-positioning forces um, and, and to develop options in case, and I want to stress right now, in case there's a need for an evacuation. So the U.S. clearly on alert. The additional capabilities include hundreds of Marines and an aircraft that could bring in ground units if necessary. As the nation teeters on the brink of a civil war, CNN has learned the Russian mercenary group Wagner is trying to tip the scales, providing Sudan's paramilitary group with missiles in its fight against the nation's army. Wagner, which has been repeatedly accused of committing atrocities, has played a pivotal role in Russia's foreign military campaigns, including and especially in Ukraine, where it stands on the front lines. In Africa, the group has helped prop up Russia's influence and seize resources. CNN's chief international investigative correspondent, Nima Wagner, joins us now with more on the group's role in Sudan. Hello, Nima. What do you know? Morning, Don. Well, we have been seeing this entrenchment of the two generals' positions in Sudan and many concerns about how the RSF was continuing to resupply itself in the intensifying fighting. We have uncovered evidence that shows that Russia via air bases, that, sorry, the Wagner Group via air bases in neighboring, uh, in neighboring Libya has been able to provide them with support. Take a look at this. The Sudanese and the Libyan armies celebrated a successful joint operation Wednesday, April 19th, near the remote desert border between Libya and Sudan, having captured the Shefrilet garrison, belonging to the rival Sudanese paramilitary rapid support forces, the RSF. But why is this military base so important, given how far it is from the existential fight in Sudan's capital, Khartoum? Because CNN can reveal that the fight in Khartoum is being influenced by what was happening at that garrison, a Russian resupply campaign backed by a key regional player aimed at turning the tide in Sudan's war in favor of the RSF, who have been a key recipient of Russian training and military aid. In collaboration with All Eyes on Wagner, a research group focusing on Russian proxy Wagner, CNN investigated the group's current presence in Libya. You can see here on April 16th, one day after the fighting began in Khartoum, a Russian Aleutian 76 transport plane at the Al Jufra base in Libya, previously identified by American intelligence as a Wagner base. Three days later, this same plane is spotted by flight tracker aviation expert Gurdjian, coming back from the Russian airbase in Latakia, Syria, before returning to the Libyan airbase in Khadim. Images of that same plane began circulating online April 17th, heading in the direction of Sudan. Sudanese and regional sources tell CNN that weaponry was airdropped to the RSF within that time frame, April 15th to April 18th, to the Chevrolet garrison during a period of fierce fighting, boosting the RSF. 
The Al Khadim and Al Jufra bases, where the Wagner planes departed from in Libya, are under the control of Field Marshal Khalifa Haftar, who commands territory in the east of Libya. Haftar and the commander of the Rapid Support Forces, Mohammed Hamdan Dagalo, aka Hemetti, have in common strategic alliances. One with Wagner, who Haftar is hosting in his territory in Libya, and whom a previous CNN investigation exposed as working with Hemetti to extract Sudanese gold. A second with the United Arab Emirates, who tapped Hemetti to send forces to the conflict in Yemen and backed Haftar in the fighting in Libya. What does it all mean for the ongoing misery and conflict in Sudan? It means that both a regional Libyan general Haftar and a global player, Russia, are putting their thumbs on the scale, which raises the stakes for the region, for the global balance of power and for the people of Sudan caught in the crossfire. Neither Field Marshal Haftar nor Wagner responded to our request for comment, but an RSF spokesperson told us that they do not currently receive uh, support from Libya or Wagner. I think it's important to note that in our previous investigation, when we exposed that they had received training and support, the RSF denied and then subsequently admitted that in the past they have received it. So I think that's important for the audience to know when they take into account this latest comment, Don. Nima, I'm so glad you're covering this very important story. Thank you so much. Really appreciate it. Thank you. Coming up on CNN This Morning. It's really clear from working there for just a few months that most of the really angry voices in Congress are totally faking it. Hmm. Wow. Freshman Congressman Jeff Jackson calling out his colleagues for faking outrage for the cameras. Who was he talking about? He's going to join us live next. Plus... Clickbait fashion is taking over your feed. Audie Cornish takes a deep dive onto how social media algorithms affect trends and help us understand the state of the economy. There could be a very big announcement on Tuesday. President Biden is expected to officially, to make it official, that he's running for re-election in 2024. This is according to sources who tell CNN that Tuesday is an important milestone for Biden. It will mark four years to the day when then-candidate Joe Biden launched his bid for the White House against Donald Trump in 2020. Let's talk about this and a whole lot more with CNN anchor and correspondent and host of the great podcast, The Assignment with Audie Cornish. Good morning. Good morning. Hi, Good morning. Uh, I think we know it, but he's going to make it yeah, official. It's one of those big if true kind of things, which Tuesday. we've known for a while. <laughs> Tuesday is a meaningful day, obviously, uh, marking four years since he got in the race against Trump. What do you think? I think it's interesting that there's still so much hand-wringing about it, right? Um, at this point, you do hear this conversation about, number one, his age, and number two, um, people who are concerned that there's polling that shows that Democrats might like an alternative to Biden. The problem is they haven't actually coalesced around anyway. um, an alternative voice. And some of the people, some of the names that are ex in existence, right, people who have run before, their numbers aren't very good. It doesn't show that they would outperform him. So on the one hand, that does, in a way, leave a lane open for a surprise type candidate or challenger. But what he does not have that, of course, the former president has is a kind of person waiting in the wings, starting to suck up some of the air in terms of media or donor attention. And in this case, it would be Ron DeSantis, who's not mm -hmm. declared or anything like that. But the name, the buzz around the name is happening. Biden doesn't have that. And as far as he's concerned, his lane is clear. 
Yeah. I, I, but he always, you know, surpasses people's expectation of, of him. And as far as legislative wins, his legis legislative wins that uh, it's early uh, <laughs> during his first term include passing the $1.9 trillion COVID relief bill, $1.2 trillion bipartisan infrastructure package. But his critics would point to stubborn inflation, border issues, and so on. So and what more you, to come, right? More to come. the debt yeah. ceiling, we don't know what the economy is going to do. We don't know the effect of changes on interest rates. We don't know what's going to happen in Ukraine or with China. So there's a lot of variables. Um, one sort of unfounded thesis I'll put out there is that the first time Biden was in the White House, it was as someone's vice president. And the second time, it was as an alternative to an incredibly disliked incumbent. He may want to win this sort of because on of his him. own, so to speak, that people would say, I want Joe Biden, not that I don't want Donald so Trump. So interesting. Um, and I, I think that sometimes we need to keep that in mind with people like him who are what I would call institutionalists. They care about their legacy. They care about these offices. They care about their sort of place in history. And it'll be interesting to see the argument he makes to the public for why it should be him. Can I just ask you something real quick before I, because I know you want to move on to other stuff. Is it real though? You know how we get this whole social media thing in Twitter and, and it turns out in the, it doesn't, it's not actually real. When you look at Biden's accomplishments, when you, you know, look at- Do you mean, what, is it real- uh, what are people saying? Well, you know, I, I'm concerned because of the board. I'm concerned because of this. Those are real issues. But when, as, when it comes to an election, will that prevent people from voting for Joe Biden or having enthusiasm? Because every president has their issues. Yes. I mean, I won't answer this question not to be coy, but because it is so early. Right. No, you're the, right. You know, the rest of the summer, people are going to be resolutely not paying attention <laughs> to this. And then all of a sudden, fall will mm -hmm. hit and it's going to be all we can hear about. Mm -hmm. And as I said, there are these very serious variables and I do think do not underestimate the concern about the economy. Right. Everyone has been talking about a recession happening. It is not officially declared a recession yet. Um, if and when that happens, of course, that is an issue for an incumbent president, yeah. especially when there has been so much chatter about it for so long. Yeah. It's the economy, yeah, stupid. Exactly. Yeah. And just don't say the fundamentals of the economy are strong. <laughs> um, A few lessons have been learned. Right. Um, you're, I cannot wait to listen to the latest episode of The Assignment, Clickbait Fashion. I know. It seems silly, but after the pandemic, people came, uh, they did some revenge shopping, they were saying. Like, you know, we spent money and we spent money on clothes. And we were just fascinated at the show at, like, why there were so many trends that were being launched, uh, apparently, online. And we were trying to get to the bottom of it. Should we talk about some of them? I think that so. there's you have a let's hear. Let's hear. Yeah. Algorithms are playing a big role in fashion discovery right now. And that is allowing people to find things that they like and share it faster than before. So the runways, they're losing relevance. All right. So what, are, what is this clickbait fashion? What are the trends? What it means is that instead of you flipping open a fashion magazine and saying, oh, I guess we're all going to wear soft purple this season. <laughs> um, instead, you have the power yourself to go online, see what's happening on TikTok, see what's and they might have influence on how things are talked about. This is clown core. Well, I don't know. <laughs> it might be clown core. We talked about a couple things on the episode. Clown core, mermaid core, ballerina sleaze. 
Um, business core is coming back, so you guys are you're on it. All right. <laughs> you're ahead of the trend. <laughs> Uh, but the point is, it's put the fashion houses on the back foot, meaning when you see Fashion Week, all of a sudden they're sending, you know, robots down the runway. They're sending a dress on fire down the runway. They're having these performative aspects because they have to punch through and capture your attention. And they can't do that compared to some kid practically. What on are those boots? Those are these, boots. The big red boots are from an art collective called Mischief. And this is a really... Uh, this is a pivotal kind of moment, I'll say, because they're not functional. Wearing them in real life <laughs> is difficult. It takes other people to get them off of your feet. <laughs> kind of like my shoes. Exactly. <laughs> but one of the things that our experts said is, you know, in an era when we're doing so much online, what does it mean for clothes to be functional? If the function is to be seen, yeah. right, if the function is just your image, then maybe that's okay. And all of this is happening in a moment where we have a generation that's questioning how much should we be spending on clothes? Should any of us be buying any more clothes given what they do to the no. environment, et cetera? But clothes are so inexpensive. So it's this kind of, uh, it's a combination of fast fashion, the algorithm and cheap clothing yeah. that are pushing a cycle of trends much faster. I like the sort of casual business that you do. Then there's casual chic. You have a, business she's core. always. That's business this core. Business she's core. always. Yeah. You can tell I am, a, if I had a mug, I just. I'm, we were we're talking looking something is, up to bring up. You said this was um, to kill a mockingbird core. Giving Clark, Atticus you said, what's, what's the name? The actor. Gregory oh, Peck. Gregory Peck. <laughs> and this is just Turner chic. It is Turner it. Classic Movies, and that's what I've been stuck on for lately. So, I, yes, I was looking up about how bad buying clothes is for the environment. My friend Maxine Bidar wrote this great book, Unraveled, The Life and Death of a Garment. Everyone should read it before you buy more. All I'm saying... 100%. Audie Thanks, Cornish, thank you very much. We appreciate it. Listen to the assignment wherever you get your podcasts. I miss when people used to dress up and <laughs> to get on airplanes. <laughs> A wild flower takeover covering California's hillside after epic rainfall. The super bloom is so large you can see it from space. Audie. Super bloom. Oh, I love the this hills song. are alive, not with the sound of music, but <laughs> with wild flowers. What are those flowers, Don Lemon? There's a wild flower, this wildfire. Uh, it's called a super bloom. After one of the wettest winters on record, California hillsides are exploding <laughs> with color. Look how beautiful that is. Swaths of yellow, orange, and blue, purple flowers taking over the landscape this month and visible even from space. Have you seen Park Avenue, by the way? No, I don't no, live Park on Park Avenue. Avenue. No, but speaking of Park <laughs> Avenue has yeah. uh, tulips of different oh, colors. Oh, I love of that. Line Park Avenue. It's really, I was saying, really beautiful. Do you know what flowers those are? Those are poppies. They're poppies, Derek Van Dam. <laughs> I know that. How does it feel to share the same name as the state flower of California that is so beautiful right now, Poppy? Um, pretty good. No one's ever given me a poppy, ever, because apparently they don't live well if you cut them. Just saying. Consider this my gift to you. <laughs> Thank you. Okay? This is wonderful. I love having a good, feel-good story on a Friday, right? This is so good. I've heard, I've been told, I've not seen this with my own eyes, but if you drive down some of the local highways and the roads, 
in California right now, you hear a couple of extra oohs and ahs. This wildflower takeover is dominated in the hillsides, the canyons. It's even visible from space. This is a satellite image. Look at those yellows and the oranges and the violets. Just wonderful. And you know what? It wasn't that long ago. It was a dry, barren landscape across California, but with all the rain, we're left with this. It's Earth Day tomorrow, Poppy. I'm going camping to celebrate. Do you have any plans? I'm taking the kids to yeah. volunteer in the Brooklyn Park, whether they want to go or not. That's a word. Go one. look for flowers. <laughs> oh, <laughs> mom. That's All beautiful. Right. Thanks, Derek. Poppy. Yeah. Oh, <laughs> made my morning. Derek, a little, doing a little dance there. President Biden said to announce he will run for a second term next week. What new polls reveal about how Democrats feel about Biden remaining in the White House? More CNN this morning to come after the break. Now to a story we've been following very closely on this show. A death row inmate in Oklahoma will appeal his case to the Supreme Court after a lower court refused to throw out his murder conviction. His name is Richard Glossop, and his lawyer yesterday called the ruling devastating. His client is now set to be executed within a month. The decision comes just two weeks after the state's attorney general recommended that Glossop get a new trial. He was convicted of murder in 1998, accused of ordering the killing of his boss, but he has maintained his innocence the whole time. And the attorney general of the state even said there's new evidence in this case, and that's why he deserves a new trial. But he's not getting one. Bryn Grass is here to explain why. Good morning. Yeah, I mean, the clock is ticking, right? And you just talked about that new evidence. That really centers around what they were appealing to the Criminal Court of Appeals in Oklahoma. It was a box of evidence who ba which basically had paperwork that included the fact that the person who actually did the killing admitted to it and in exchange for his testimony against Glossop in these trials uh, essentially wanted to recant his statement. That was what was among the, the uh, evidence and what we talked about, Poppy, what has as we've continued uh, to follow this case. But the justices in a 5-0 decision said it wasn't enough evidence to bring this case to the lower courts and have uh, another trial. And as Poppy said, it's devastating. I want you to hear from Richard Glossop's attorney about how he reacted to this news. He said today to me, Don, you know, should I be prepared to be killed on May 18th? Uh, and, and that was about as low a point as I've seen him. And this is his ninth execution date. Uh, this is this is tough. He's he's been down this road far too many times. No one should have to endure that. Okay, so what comes next? We said that his attorney is going to appeal to the U.S. Supreme Court, but also the Oklahoma legislature has been so much involved in this case. And we just learned that Kevin McDougal, who the representative who's really been the leader of that this, you know, Effort is basically saying that he's going to try to change the state law, get the governor to sign it to try to bring this case back to the Criminal Court mm. of Appeals. And if that doesn't work, he's going to even try to impeach these justices. So this could get very wow. explosive in Oklahoma. And what's so notable about him is he's a Republican who's pro-death penalty. Yeah. But not in this case. Yeah. He said, why should someone die if, if, if they didn't do it? <laughs> if it? You know, that should be reserved for people who, you know, other crimes, I should say. And thank you All right, very you. much. See, now this morning continues right now. President Biden's announcement to run for a second term now may be days away. There's clearly a desire in the American public to see a generational change, but voters are willing to put that aside if they feel like the alternative is a much bigger problem. I plan on running out, but we're not prepared to announce it yet. I just didn't know when. The win appears to be next week. 
criminal charges will be dropped in the 2021 fatal shooting with cinematographer on the Western film Rust. We can't convince jurors beyond reasonable doubt that Alec Baldwin is guilty of involuntary manslaughter. When you prosecute people, you change and affect their lives. Someone is responsible for what happened, but I know it's not me. The idea that the person holding the gun is not responsible is absurd to me. A note left behind by the gunman in another mass shooting. The notes show that at least part of the motivation here was to show how easy it is in the United States to get an assault weapon. It is so much easier to get a weapon in this country than it is to get mental health services. It's straight out of the Hollywood script. $15 million worth of gold stolen from an airport. This high-value container was removed by illegal means from the holding facility. Our investigators have got their eyes open to all avenues. Starship of SpaceX sending out a massive boom as it lifted off and then tumbled and exploded about four minutes later. People were describing scenes in their neighborhoods that it was raining sand on them. My expectations were here, and today we went here. I got one word. Holy smokes! Wow, people were <laughs> excited about that. Listen, there's a, a lot to talk about. There's lots to talk about guns, yeah. uh, including you know with people that have been making mistakes and then getting killed and are severely injured for it. Yeah, but also the week. gun on the set of Rust. of Rust, the Alec Baldwin movie. Prosecutors have dropped the criminal charges against him, but now there's new reporting as it relates to the gun that you want to stand by for. Also, Smartmatic now saying they're not going to settle for anything less than what Dominion got from Fox News. Fascinating. And they plus they want an apology. All of that coming this hour. Good morning, everyone. We're so happy that you could join us. And we're going to start, though, with this. President Biden about to make it official. Sources are telling CNN he is planning to formally announce he is running for re-election next week. We're expecting a campaign-style video announcement to drop on Tuesday. It is a symbolic day for the president. Tuesday marks the four-year anniversary of him entering the 2020 presidential race. New polls, I should say a new poll, shows more than 80% of Democrats say that they would either definitely or probably support him in the general election if he is a nominee. So let's straight out now to the White House. CNN's Arlette Sands joins us. Arlette Sands joins us. Arlette, good morning to you. The president loves an anniversary next Tuesday. Is that going to be the day? Well, Don, the waiting game may soon be over. President Biden for months has said that he intends to run for president, but it appears the plans to actually do that are finally being set into motion. His team is eyeing next week as a possible uh, venue for his launch and doing that through a video possibly to be released as soon as Tuesday. Tuesday is a very important day for President Biden, as it was the day four years ago that he launched his last uh, bid for the White House, which he ultimately ultimately was successful on. Now, this would put to end months of speculation about whether the 80-year-old president would seek a second term in office. Sources have told us that he settled on Wilmington, Delaware as his campaign headquarters, but we're still waiting for some of the other campaign apparatus details to shake out. But one thing his advisors are eager to get the ball rolling on is fundraising. Uh, sources have told us that top Democrats uh, from the president's last campaign in 2020, they've been invited to Washington, D.C. for a meeting with the president on Friday, and the advisors are hoping that they can really ramp up fundraising when it comes to both grassroots supporters and those big dollar donors. Okay, but what about real support? People really want him to want run, Arlette. 
Yeah, you know, there's some interesting polling that shows just exactly how many people want President Biden to run in 2024. If you take a look at those numbers, his numbers are actually up a little bit amongst both Democrats and the overall public. But right now, only 47 percent of Democrats say they want him to run and 26 percent of the overall public uh, say they want him to seek a second term. But as you noted, uh, those Democrats in that poll also suggest that they would possibly fall in line with a presidential re-election bid, with 81 percent of Democrats saying they would probably support the president in his run for the White House. Now, energizing and mobilizing these Democratic voters will be key for President Biden as he heads into this re-election race. But he will also need to win over those moderate Republicans and independent voters, especially at a moment where he could face a possible rematch with former President Donald Trump. Arlette Sines at the White House for us this morning. Thank you, Arlette. Appreciate it. Today, as Don was saying, prosecutors in New Mexico are set to drop all charges against Alec Baldwin in the 2021 deadly Rust film shooting. A source familiar with this investigation tells CNN prosecutors made this decision after new evidence showed somebody modified that gun. Those sources say that leaves open the possibility that indeed Baldwin did not pull the trigger. And this is something he has repeatedly said. I never once said never, that the gun went off in my hand automatically. I always said I pulled the hammer back and I pulled it back as far as I could. I never took a gun and pointed at somebody and clicked the thing. And I let go of the hammer of the gun and the gun goes off. I let go of the hammer of the gun and the gun goes off. At the moment, the decisive That was the moment the gun went off, yeah. That was the moment the gun went off. It wasn't in the script for the trigger to be pulled. Well, the trigger wasn't pulled. I didn't pull the trigger. So you never pulled the trigger? No, 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 no. I would never point a gun at anyone and pull a trigger at them, never. Baldwin was facing two counts of involuntary manslaughter for the deadly shooting of the film's cinematographer, Helena Hutchins, a year and a half ago. The actor was rehearsing on set with a prop gun when it fired off, killing Hutchins and hurting director Joel Souza. Baldwin has said a crew member yelled, cold gun, meaning it had no live rounds in it before handing him the weapon. Prosecutors announced they will drop the charges during a hearing today. But they say their investigation is still active. They could press further criminal charges later. What would those be? Where does this go? Criminal defense attorney Joey Jackson is here. Good morning. Good morning. Wow. Two weeks before trial. Vindication. Uh, vindication. This is vindication? Uh, I think in a significant way. He's been claiming repeatedly that he did not at all pull the trigger. The modification seems to be consistent with that. What modification? The gun modification. But it's more troubling than that. <clears throat> the trouble for me is that I'm horrified with respect to how prosecutors have handled this case. Mm -hmm. the, this happened in October 2021. You're telling me now that you have information with respect to the gun? Would that not be critical to know before you charge someone? Would it not be critical to know before you proceed and, and really say that someone is responsible criminally? And the significance of this is really twofold as it relates to the law. Number one, if you're charging someone with being reckless, right, or negligent even, now we have the issue of the gun, which suggests, hey, maybe he wasn't. Now you have the second issue with respect to causation, causing of the death. If the gun were modified and he did not pull the trigger, then you have an issue with causation. But he was charged and he was charged in January of this past year, 14 months later. You didn't know that. And so I'm very troubled. So th this for now, they said they dropped the charges. Mm -hmm. But then how how do you go back? Because his attorneys will say, well, you, you already said the gun was modified. Yeah, I, you I said that. It's, so 
I think what prosecutors need to do really is to is to come clean and really just say, look, we investigated the case and it, this is a tragedy by all accounts. But we know that many tragedies don't result in prosecutions. There are times when there's the tragedy that results in civil litigation, as this has, right? Civil relating to monetary damages, carelessness. But you say come clean. Do you think do you think he should have been charged? Are you saying that I'm you- saying that initially he shouldn't have been charged in the first charged. instance. Why? The prosecutor. Prosecutors don't even consult the union, right, with respect to this. Why is that important? Would it not be critical to know what an actor's responsibility is when the union came out and said to them, look, actors are not firearm experts. We're going to hold them to that standard. Then prosecutors charge him, this is important to know, under a law that wasn't even in existence at the time, which is called the enhancement law, where you get five years in the event that you discharge a firearm at someone. I I, I mean, it was dismissed because of the fact that it shouldn't have been charged. Do your investigation. If the investigation determines his criminality, move forward. If it doesn't, Mm. don't do it for political reasons or because he's Alec Baldwin. Say we don't have the evidence and don't move. They did, and here's where we are. I was thinking all morning, you know, when are we... We haven't, just to be clear, because I want to keep a focus also on the, the woman who died, Absolutely. Helena Hutchins. We don't have a statement, a new statement from her family yet. Obviously, we'll bring viewers out when we have it and want to hear their voice in all of this. Of but you bring up an interesting point, because now the lawyers for the armor, right, they're responsible for getting the gun ready, all these props, et cetera, says they expect that the charges against her will also be dropped. Is it apples to apples because of this? So they're not completely similarly situated, and here's why, Poppy. You have one who's the armor who's responsible for the care, custody, and control of that firearm. Where is that firearm? Is it loaded? Is it loaded with dummy rounds? Is that really secured properly? Is it given to the actor in a condition where it is a cold gun, meaning not going to go off? So they're not similarly situated to the extent that the actor, Alec Baldwin, reasonably relies upon a team, right? So while it's different, the results could be the same in terms of the dismissal, if the gun was defective, would it be her responsibility also? Mm. Would she have known that? And so I think the prosecutors are going to have a problem as to her also. That might be the next dismissal to come. Okay, look, can I ask you about the prosecution had some missteps, said that ultimately forcing the the case to be assigned to a whole new team. I'm wondering if, if politics could be interfering in this because you have, you seem to have concerns about the prosecutor. There was this uh, email from a prosecutor saying, at some point though, I'd like, uh, I'd at least like to get out there that I am assisting you as it might help me in my campaign. So that was the first prosecutor, right? So this was crazy. What happened was a special prosecutor apparently was running for office at the time or held the position as a state senator or some such thing. What ended up happening was that she was also prosecuting the case. You can't prosecute cases predicated upon politics. You have to prosecute them predicated upon facts, although we see the political element you know, coming into these all the time. And so she steps aside. Another special prosecutor is appointed. The actual district attorney steps aside. And then you have new special prosecutors who say, guess what? There's new evidence. We have to dismiss this case. Should not have been brought. Wow. Joy Jackson. Wow, indeed. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. you. Appreciate that. Uh, Moving on now, we're going to talk about the suspect accused of shooting a six-year-old neighbor and her parents in North Carolina will appear in court today. 24-year-old Robert Lewis Singletary turned himself into authorities in Florida on Thursday. Singletary allegedly opened fire after being angered by a basketball that rolled into his yard on Tuesday. Joining us now from Gaston County, North Carolina, CNN national correspondent Diane Gallagher. Diane, good morning to you. I mean, wow, this uh, unbelievable. We're learning that there are um, 
there's some clear red flags here with this man in the neighborhood. What are you hearing about that? That's right, Don. I spent all day yesterday with the people of that neighborhood who told me that they had not slept uh, since that shooting because they were so afraid because this alleged shooter, Robert Singletary, was still on the loose. There was a manhunt that involved U.S. Marshals. But yesterday evening on Thursday, he turned himself in to authorities nearly 600 miles away in Hillsborough, Florida. Now, he does have a hearing later today regarding potential tradition here back to Gaston County. Uh, neighbors told me that, look, there were issues this, since about a couple weeks that he had moved in to stay with his girlfriend in a room she was renting in a house there. He had been yelling at children. He did not seem to like the children of the neighborhood. And they said it's a very kid-friendly neighborhood. Dozens of them were outside on Tuesday evening when a basketball rolled into Singletary's yard. According to neighbors, they say that a parent came to confront him about cursing out his child and then Singletary went inside, got the gun, and began shooting. Of course, six-year-old Kensley White, her father and mother, were all shot. Uh, Don, I talked to that mother after the arrest, and she told me that she was glad and she felt relieved, but she also wasn't sure exactly how he managed to get all the way to Florida. Mm -hmm. um, and also the little girl speaking out yesterday as well. What is the latest on the health of all of the people who were shot? You know, talking to her mother, she says that Kinsley, she had fragments of a bullet in her cheek that doctors had removed. She has stitches in her face. And, of course, it's a traumatizing event. But right now, the big concern is the father, Jamie White. He was shot in the back, according to the family. He has damage to his liver, his lung, his ribs were broken, and his abdomen. And uh, he has a very long road to recovery. Don, he remains in the hospital in Charlotte still this morning. All right. Thank you, Diane Gallagher. And we wish all of them well. Thank you so much. Well, this morning, six people, four of them teenagers, are now facing murder charges in connection with a mass shooting at a Sweet 16 party in Alabama last weekend. They were arrested over the course of the last week. All of them, except a 15-year-old who has not been identified, are being held without bond in the local jail. They opened fire last Saturday while the party was in full swing. Four people were killed, including the birthday girl's brother. At least 32 people were injured, 15 of them teens. This rampage is one of the latest... 165 mass shootings in the United States this year. That's according to the Gun Violence Archive. Congressman Jeff Jackson has only been in Congress about 100 days, but he's already calling out his colleagues for faking outrage for the cameras. What he says his coworkers are really like behind the scenes. We'll ask him when he joins us live next. And Fox News settled its Dominion case, but now has to deal with Smartmatic. Why this lawsuit over the 2020 election lies could be the network's next big problem. More CNN this morning to come after the break. A freshman House Democrat known for his use of TikTok, I think he has 1.6 million followers. He's gone viral again, this time for calling out some of his colleagues for fake outrage. Watch this. It's really clear from working there for just a few months that most of the really angry voices in Congress are totally faking it. The same people who act like maniacs during the open meetings are suddenly calm and rational during the closed ones. Why? 
because there aren't any cameras in the closed meetings. So their incentives are different. What I've seen is that members of Congress are surrounded by negative incentives. There are rewards for bad behavior. Fake it till you make it. Yeah. Joining us now is a man behind the video, freshman congressman from North Carolina, Jeff Jackson. We, Don and I were stunned watching this, and you thought we would know this is obvious, but to have you say it really says something. Who are you talking about? Both parties? Well, sure. I think this is not unique to either party. I don't think it's the same in both parties, though. I think the incentive structure to win a Republican primary right now is basically to try and be the angriest voice in the room. I think we're seeing a lot of that this week. But the reason I did the video was because as the new guy, you have a special brand of credibility and being able to show up to a place and look around and then sort of report back to everyone what they need to know. And I thought people needed to know. I don't think it was a newsflash to you or a lot of people who follow politics closely, but a lot of America doesn't know that this anger is fake, that you've got a group of people in Congress who are on team outrage. And what they're doing is auditioning every day to be the captain of Team Outrage. Mm -hmm. Do you have, do you have ex uh, any specific examples? I have so many questions when it comes to this, but do you have any specific exa examples for us, Congressman? I, I think you know the people on this list, <laughs> and what I would give people is the formula for figuring out who's on this list. It's not who gets angry. It's who is always angry. The folks who are always angry, they're the ones who are auditioning. They're looking for the media outlets who are trying to keep their audience angry. And so if you can get access to those media outlets, it's a huge win for these folks. And they're up there not to do public service, but just to get as much out access to those outlets as possible. Okay, I'm glad you said that, because uh, we would say often say that, especially during the 2016 election, and then also in, in 2020 as well. People would say one thing in the green room. They'd say one thing in a pre-interview. They'd say one thing before the commercial break, or during the commercial break. And then when you came out on television, they'd say the complete opposite. All of a sudden, there was outrage, and you know, you're fake news, and uh, you know, you libs, or whatever, and they'd do that, right? So this plays into what is happening now with Dominion and now Smartmatic. What was your response uh, to the Dominion uh, settlement and the Dominion case? And as it moves forward, uh, Smartmatic, as it comes to suing media companies for not telling the truth? Hmm. I thought the settlement was justice for Dominion. It was clearly fair to that company, but it wasn't the outcome that would have served our country the best. What would serve our country the best is an episodic explanation and textual proof that so much of this is fake, that it's intentionally, it's intended to deceive people. A long lesson in how the incentive structure really works behind the scenes to produce fake anger would have been very instructive for the American people. Basically, I was sad that it didn't go to trial. It's mm. really interesting. And that's what former Fox News anchor Gretchen Carlson also said, that she wanted it to go to trial to expose more of this. So I, it, I watched your uh, TikTok a few times this morning. And one of the things you say is, um, that because there aren't cameras in the closed meetings, their incentives are different. And it got me thinking about the, 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 how you weigh the interest of transparency, right? Because there's a real press interest and a public interest in transparency and seeing a lot of what you do, what we pay you guys to do on camera. But at the same time, you're saying a lot of what's on camera is fake. How do you weigh those two things? 
I think that's a really good question. I think your assumption here is correct. Behind closed doors, there's way more consensus. There's way more compromise. And then people step out into public, and it's a lot of song and dance. What I can tell you is that I had an assumption before I got to Congress about what percentage of people in Congress were serious and what percentage were basically team outrage. I thought team outrage was going to be about a third of the people who were there. It's not. It's less than 10%. Mm. And that's the good news I try to give to my constituents when I report back to them about first, first impressions here. Yeah. It's a catch-22. You said the camera's in there, but they're also playing for the camera. So, right, I get yeah. it. Can we talk about the debt ceiling now? Uh, the deadline is coming up. What do you think? Should, should the House negotiate with Kevin McCarthy? The White House. The White House, I yeah. should say. Excuse me. Well, I think that's going to be very difficult until Speaker McCarthy puts forth something that's at least in the ballpark of reasonable. I don't think this initial bill from him is. And he's expressed a lot of confidence that he's got the votes in his own party to get this passed. I'm not sure he does. This is a lot of very steep cuts in a lot of different areas, veterans affairs, air traffic control, nutrition plans for seniors, and to ask a lot of his vulnerable members. He has 18 Republicans who are in districts that Biden won to ask them to vote for all of these cuts for something that we know is dead on arrival in the Senate, I wouldn't be surprised if they're being a little too optimistic about odds for passage out of his caucus next week. Mm. Congressman Jeff Jackson, thank are you, you. Are you ready for the president to say he's going to run again on, right on Tuesday? I, I think that's the least surprising political news of the year. I think we've all been operating under the assumption for several months that the president will be running for re-election. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. Are you, you going to vote for him? Yep. Yep. I, I like that answer. Yep, that's a good answer. Thank you for calling this out. It's something it's for calling out the hypocrisy. And we didn't talk about the people who come on and do interviews and then go on and, you know, raise money afterwards right right away they're on social media raising money look i gave it to the live i gave it to the liberal media what have you so we appreciate you keep doing what you're doing it's good stuff thanks so much take thank care thank you very much so let's talk more about this illegal nightmare for fox news just beginning really the battle with dominion is over for now but the network is still facing an even bigger multi-billion dollar defamation lawsuit from smartmatic over broadcasting lies about the election smartmatic's lawyer tells cnn that the company wants a full retraction and it won't accept anything smaller than the historic 787 million dollar settlement that dominion got clearly fox knew that the election wasn't rigged, that they clearly knew the election machines weren't involved in rigging something. All of that evidence is out there, and we get to layer on top of that. Smartmatic is in this case for the long haul. They are looking to take this case through trial. They are looking through the vindication of a jury verdict in their favor. So Fox News has denied any wrongdoing and is fighting the Smartmatic lawsuit. Last-minute settlement with Dominion spared Fox from having to do an on-air retraction or apology about spreading election lies. And the network avoided a potentially embarrassing trial with Rupert Murdoch, Tucker Carlson, and other Fox News stars taking the stand. Smartmatic's lawyer will join us live in the next hour to talk about all of that. That'll be really interesting. Uh, this morning, sad news to report. We've learned that an American citizen has died in Sudan amid these violent clashes. How the U.S. is bracing for more potential violence. And a Russian warplane accidentally bombed its own city. A look at the devastation is next. Yeah. 
Well, just moments ago, we got confirmation that a U.S. citizen has died in Sudan. The State Department says that they are in touch with the family. Sudan's military and a rival paramilitary group have been fighting since last Saturday. At least 413 people have been killed so far. It hasn't even been a week yet. And this morning, we're learning that the U.S. is deploying, quote, additional capabilities near Sudan to secure the embassy there and assist with a potential evacuation. Hundreds of Marines are already based in Camp Lemonier in Djibouti. Uh, as of December, there were 14 active duty U.S. military personnel in Sudan providing embassy security. All this comes as a 72-hour ceasefire was announced overnight. The truce aligns with the Muslim holiday that marks the end of Ramadan. The ceasefire could provide a crucial window for aid to be distributed to the people caught in the conflict zones. The World Health Program warns that if the fighting continues, millions could be forced into hunger. Tens of thousands of people have already fled Sudan and are now refugees. Now to Russia and what some are describing as an accidental firing. At least two people have been injured. And this happened because a Russian warplane dropped a bomb on the Russian city of Belgorod last night. It's about 25 miles north of the country's border with Ukraine. The region has been the scene of several explosions and bombings since Russia invaded Ukraine over a year ago. And take a look at this, because here you can see some of the damage from the explosion. According to state news agencies, Russia's defense ministry said it was caused by an emergency drop of aviation munition. It's not clear what kind of weapon was involved, and no deaths so far have been reported. A rare heist at Toronto's Pearson Airport. Police say daring thieves made off with about $15 million worth of gold and other valuables stored in a cargo container taken illegally from an airport holding facility. Straight out of CNN's Paula Newton, live in Ottawa, Canada. Paula, good morning to you. Tell us more. What happened? It is quite a head-scratcher, Don. I mean, think about it. This is an airport. It's supposed to be one of the most secure places. And yet, on Monday evening, it seems a cargo container about five or six feet square was loaded off an airplane, so far, so normal, was put into a holding warehouse. And then, in the terms of what the police said, it was taken illegally. You got it, John. This is high-value contents, they're saying. About $15 million worth. Some of it was gold. Some of it was other articles. They weren't really willing to say what. And I think that's the point of this. Police weren't really willing to say too much. They wouldn't tell us which airline was involved, who mm. they thought was involved, what else was in the cargo hold there. But I want you to listen now to police uh, at the airport yesterday during the press conference when asked if they thought this was a professional job. Listen. Well, our investigators have got their eyes open to all avenues, so we really don't want to uh, make an error and sort of focus on one particular area. We're kind of keeping a broad outlook on it, so we're looking at all angles on how this item was stolen. So, but I mean, I, to, for me to come on the record and say it's professional this time would be really, really early for me, and I, I, you know, I'd be hesitant to say such things. But think about this. At this point, they're not telling us whether there is any surveillance video of how and when this container was stolen, and they don't even know if it is still in the country. Now, no one wants to be too flippant about this, right? This is an airport. It should be much more secure. secure. A cargo container shouldn't just go missing. But you can't help but have your Ocean's Eleven soundtrack right. playing in the background here mm -hmm. because it is still quite a mystery. Yeah. And if they don't know any of that, like they don't know surveillance, they don't even know if it's still in the country, does that mean the police don't have any leads? 
you know, there are no suspects, certainly. They didn't ask the public for help, Poppy, and this is what was so extraordinary. And you got the feeling that the press conference was hastily arranged because it had already leaked out from the press on Monday. They wanted people to know about this. At the latest, we would have had some kind of police statement by Tuesday. That didn't happen. This yeah. was late Thursday night. You got it, Poppy. For them to say that, you know, it's not, they don't even know if it's in the country. Right. Not too many leads as far as we understand right wow. now. Wow. When I read about it waking up this morning, I was like, this is out of a movie. It's yeah. real, though. Paula, thanks very much. <laughs> Thank you, Paula. Today, two of the men involved in the 2017 Unite the Right rally in Charlottesville will be in court. We're going to take you live to Virginia. Plus this. You guys want to see how dangerous that is? Oh, that is a bus driver caught slamming the brakes, all to, quote, teach kids a lesson. Well, now he's facing charges. Hours from now, two men accused of marching through Charlottesville, Virginia, with a group of white nationalists set to appear in court. In 2017, the group shocked the country when they carried lit tiki torches through the city. During the march, they chanted hateful phrases like, uh, you will not replace us, Jews will not replace us. Well, on Tuesday, six years later, a judge in Virginia announcing a grand jury indicted three men on charges of intent to intimidate during that march. Six years later... Since Brian Todd, Todd live for us in Charlottesville this morning with the very latest. Brian, what are we expecting today? Well, Don, in a couple of hours, this is going to be a bond hearing for one of the men, and that's Will Zachary Smith from Texas. Uh, he's been in custody since January. It's going to be an initial court appearance for another one of the defendants. His name, Tyler Bradley Dykes. He's from Bluffton, South Carolina. A third defendant, Dallas Medina from Ohio, has been arrested but is not in custody, or at least he wasn't as of a couple of days ago. So a bond hearing for one, uh, an initial appearance for the other. These men, as you mentioned, Don, charged with, quote, burning an object with the intent to to intimidate, and that was related to that torch march that was held in Charlottesville the night before the Unite the Right rally, um, this, the night of Friday, August 11th, uh, 2017. These white nationalists marched through the campus of the University of Virginia. Don mentioned those horrible slogans that they chanted, Jews will not replace us. One of the slogans was blood and soil, which is a Nazi reference. Uh, and for many years, the people who led that t a torch march were not charged. The former um, Commonwealth's attorney for Albemarle County, Robert Tracci, declined to press charges against them. But the current uh, uh, Commonwealth's attorney for the county, his name, James uh, Hingley, he was the one who kind of led the charge to bring uh, charges against these defendants. And so we'll see where it goes from here. Are other people who took part in that torch march going to be charged? Could there be others uh, who were involved in the Unite the Right rally on that Saturday, which, of course, led to so much horrible violence that day and the death of a counterproach? protester Heather Heyer uh, when mm -hmm. uh, she was struck by a vehicle that rammed a crowd of uh, protesters. Is there going to be are there going to be charges for any of the of the people who were involved in that? Interestingly, Don, this is kind of a continuation of an effort to uh, bring some justice for that event uh, six years ago, because I was here about a year and a half ago when there was a big civil trial. Some of the leaders of the Unite the Right rally, some of these white nationalists were successfully sued for about twenty six million dollars. And uh, this was the, the plan plaintiffs were people who were victims of the violence and civil rights groups. They won a lawsuit against them. So interestingly, you know, a continuation here, Don, of the effort to bring justice uh, for those events in 2017. Thank you, Brian. I'm glad you answered my question, though. I was wondering what took so long. There's a different prosecutor now. Thank yeah. you, Brian Todd in Charlottesville, Virginia. Right. Appreciate it.
Absolutely. A Colorado school bus driver who intentionally slammed the brakes while driving children now faces 30 years, 30 child abuse charges, I should say. He defends his action, saying it was to educate them. Listen. You guys want to see how dangerous that is? Do you get that? That's why you need to be in your seat. Turn around and sit down properly. The children from Douglas County's Castle Rock Elementary School are between five years old and 12 years old. One girl called her mom from the bus, telling her mom someone was hurt. Sixty-one-year-old former bus driver Brian Fitzgerald has his first court appearance in May. A sheriff's department in California going beyond the call of duty. Deputies in Fresno County risked their own lives last month to deliver a life-saving medication to a man stranded in a home surrounded by feet of snow. CNN's Veronica Miracle has more on the heroic mission. The call came in early March after unusually heavy snowfall closed off this mountain community near Fresno, California. I've never seen a year like this. Jared Cook was at his family's cabin near Huntington Lake for what he thought would be a weekend getaway until a monster storm hit. Every day, another two feet of snow kept coming in and there was no way to get out. Ultimately, I was just trapped. 10 to 12 feet of snow had piled up. The National Weather Service issued a dangerous weather alert and the only road in was completely shut down for weeks. It came so fast and so um, dense between each storm. So within that, it was just powder on top of powder. It was kind of like Groundhog's Day. Like a couple day thing turned into two weeks of you in isolation. Total isolation, total solitude with no other human beings around. Two weeks in, Jared was running out of his three heart medications. Out of desperation, he reached out to the local Huntington Lake Fire Department, but even they had no way to reach him. <laughs> So they called in the Fresno County Sheriff's Office, which tried to reach Jared by helicopter during extreme weather conditions. We kind of reserved this one as our rescue helicopter, and this is the one that we were actually flying that day. In a remote location. This cabin was uh, stuck between 100-foot trawl trees. Amid snow piled higher than the cabin. We land, uh, we could get what we call a whiteout condition, where the snow just comes up and basically you lose all visual reference. The team in the air had to come up with an alternative way to get the medicine to Jared. They said, when you hear us, go outside and try to get in view and wave us down. We ended up going with plan B and just kind of hovering over the house, over the roadway, and we dropped it off to him. In flight, you got the door open, you're about to drop it. What's going through your mind about like what could go wrong? Number one, it was uh, flying high enough so we don't hit the trees. Number two would be probably not hitting the gentleman with the bag. And the most important is probably not damaging the helicopter while we're in flight. I had to hold the door open with my left hand, and I had to drop the bag in between the skid and drop it into this little area right here. They did the drop, and I just saw powder fly. The bag had dropped through the snow, so I dug it out, and once I had it and located it, you know, I just gave them the thumbs up. I think that's why we all do the job. You know, the teamwork, the sheriff's office came together, the team, 
you know, we made a plan quickly and we were able to help somebody that was in need. They really are heroes to me. Veronica Miracle, CNN. Heroes, real heroes. Of course. Uh, the House just passed a bill that bans transgender athlete, athletes from competing in female school sports. But what does the polling say about American support for LGBTQ protections? More CNN this morning to come after the break. The underlying bill, which would completely ban participation uh, of all uh, transgender kids across our country. The other side does not even want to acknowledge that transgender kids exist, that transgender people exist. As a woman who is pro-LGBTQ, I don't care how you dress, I don't care what pronoun you take, I don't care if you change your gender, but we ought to protect biological women and girls in their, their athletics and their achievements. The House has passed a Republican-led bill that would ban transgender athletes from competing in female school sports at federally funded schools. Every Republican in the House voted yes and every Democrat voted no. This bill does not stand a chance of being taken up in the Democratic-controlled Senate, but it still opens a bigger conversation here. Liz Farah Griffin, CNN political commentator and former White House communications director under President Trump, is with us. It's great to have you here. Good morning. Good morning. So we, we were really intrigued by um, this sort of tweet thread you posted yesterday um, referring to polling about LGBTQ support. There is a distinction here, as you want to point out, between support for transgender women and girls playing in in um, male sports. But my question to you is, what is the bigger picture you're trying to point to here? Big picture, I think the GOP is going way too far pushing anti-LGBTQ policies. The so-called don't say gay bill in Florida will lose you a generation of voters. Of course, it was first presented as only affecting education up to third grade, but now it's going up to 12th grade. So you're talking about high school students you know, raising questions about how can you talk about your gay parents in the classroom or if you happen to be gay, how is that even discussed? That's something my generation rejects. The polling shows eight in 10 Americans believe there should be more protections for the LGBTQ community to avoid discrimination. 67% of Republicans. I don't have the breakdown. I would assume a lot of those are younger voters. So I think that there's a there's this really big overreach on the right to try to appeal to primary voters, many of them, frankly, older voters who have more traditional old school views on these issues. But I think it's a total loser in a general election. I think Ron DeSantis's numbers dropping is partially because of this. Mm. He's alienating an entire community. The trans women in sports issue is a very nuanced issue. And Congress is where nuance goes to die. Um, I mean, the breakdown of that vote just shows it. There was absolutely no effort to try to meet in the middle and find something that works for both sides. I have talked to a lot of parents, mostly, uh, you know, who have female daughters who have concerns over this issue. But there is certainly something that I think is a step below a federal bar on trans athletes competing in women's sports that could be reached. So the U.S. Census says we have about 1.5 million transgender Americans. That's a minority within a minority. The number of those who then go on to be elite athletes competing at this level, this is not an issue that is affecting a ton of people. And I would think that there is something, frankly, I would, I would say the NCAA should come up with a standard that would make sure that, you know, biological women feel comfortable, but you're also not alienating trans women from being able to compete altogether. The White House has come down very strongly on one side and Republicans on the other neither are even trying to meet in the middle on Alyssa, it. I think you're exactly right. It is, it's, an, it's an important issue. But when you see the number of people who are affected by it, really, really, really small, as you said, the, the question is that these sort of 
you know, social wedge issues. Why, then why are Republicans still, because it's a losing issue for them. They're very, it's, they're very animating issues in a primary and with a certain wing of the donor class. But then I would argue on the flip side, some prominent donors came out against Governor DeSantis and said, you're going too far in some of these social issues and pulled back support. But I do think it's, it's a, you know, there are donors who would like to see the GOP be a party of the 1990s, where we're, you know, against gay marriage, we're against marriage equality. That's not where the country is moving. No one wants to go backward on if these the issues. answer. If you said to me, because it works, Don, I would go, OK, because it works. Doesn't but I'm work. asking the question because it appears not to be working. It doesn't. And I hate to make this analogy because there's so much I disagree with Donald Trump on. And he certainly did have some stances that I think affected the LGBTQ community. But he also never made it front and center in his campaign. And I actually think it helped with some young supporters that they're like, finally, we don't have to get into these highly toxic cultural wedge issues that just are not reflective of where we are genera- generationally. Um, other candidates are leaning very hard into it, and I think it's going to make it extremely hard to win a general election. But what's going on with Governor DeSantis? Because so many people sort of crowned him even before. He hasn't even officially gotten in the race. And yet all the headlines this week are about you know, how he's struggling. He just lost, uh, he didn't get the endorsement of the congressman for his own former district in Florida, the Republican congressman. What's going on? And a big donor. Oh, yeah, that big donor. donor. I think he's still working to establish a professional team around him. I actually have a number of friends who are on his pack that are very experienced operatives, but they're still in this firewall until he's an announced candidate. He's gotten some very bad advice. I mean, the, the single thing that hurt him the most was calling Ukraine a territorial dispute. You had the most prominent Republican saying, whoa, 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 that is not where we are. Um, but I also think this, these cultural wedge issues are hurting him and the continued war against Disney. Um, it's too soon to, certainly too soon to write his obituary politically. Uh, but I, I said from the outset, you know, let's see him tested on a national stage. For someone like Ron DeSantis, if you take a position that is, you know, perhaps controversial, like the so-called don't say gay bill, then he needs to come and sit down with mainstream media and explain this is why we think this is best for Florida or six week abortion ban. You have to be able to defend it to unfriendly audiences. And I can't think of a single time I've seen him do that yet. To Trump's credit in 2016, he'd go on Morning Joe, he'd go on CNN and he'd argue. And it wasn't always good. It wasn't always healthy or ripe for debate. But he at least had the conversation. DeSantis isn't doing that. And it makes people wonder if he's capable. Every single interview. I mean, you would call and say, you know, can you, Mr. Trump, will you come on? Sure, I'll come on. Do I have to come on the set? Will I call? I think I did eight interviews sure. with him. I'm um, sure. Then, and it's interesting. It, Ron DeSantis seems to be doing the victory lap before he's even, you know, run the race. So, which, we can't forget how early it is in the primary. And who fights with Disney? Change. Who fights with Mickey Mouse? Come on, come on. Weirdly, I think he got married at Disney, too. So DeSantis <laughs> did he like, really? Are you serious? Yeah. yeah. I'm like, he what did. Are you doing? Uh, by the way, this is going to get even at the more Magic popular. Castle or whatever. Kingdom, kingdom, <laughs> kingdom, Magic Kingdom. June is Pride Month. Every major corporation in America <laughs> is going to be course. flying the flag, That's and you so can't true. pick a fight with all them because yeah. that is where the mood of the country is. Yeah. So Biden's going to run again Tuesday. You think that's the day? I have no idea. <laughs> <laughs> we'll we watch. shall see. We shall see. Alyssa, yeah. thanks. Thank you, and we'll be watching a little bit later yes. on some other show. <laughs> we call it the View. <laughs> Thank you. CNN This Morning continues right now. I never once said, never, that the gun went off in my hand automatically. Well, the trigger wasn't pulled. I didn't pull the trigger. So you never pulled the trigger? No, 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 no. I, I would never point a gun at anyone and pull a trigger at them, never. 
Morning, everyone. Morning, everyone. It's Friday. It's Friday. It's 8 a.m. <laughs> it's 8 a.m. Easter. Uh, it's Friday. It's 8 a.m. Caitlin is off. Poppy and I are here. But this is when if you, people who are involved in any kind of litigation, they tell you, trust the process, trust the process. Because things look bleak for a long time for Alec, for Alec Baldwin. Baldwin. And now it seems to be coming around. We'll see. Not quite over yet, but according to our Joey Jackson, he says close to this it. is close to this is vindication. According yeah, to Joey. we're talking about Alec Baldwin being adamant, as you just heard, that he did not pull the trigger in just hours from now. A prosecutor is set to drop charges against him for the deadly shooting on the Rust movie set. Coming up, the new evidence that came to light. Plus, plus, we are now learning that the mass shooter who killed five workers at a bank in Louisville apparently wanted to show how easy it was for a mentally ill person to buy an assault rifle in America. And the legal nightmare is not over for Fox News. Smartmatic is demanding an even bigger payout than Dominion's historic $787 million settlement for spreading election lies. Coming up, Smartmatic's lawyer joins us live. But let's begin with President Biden, who is getting ready to officially announce he's running for re-election. Sources tell CNN his team is planning to release a campaign-style video announcement on Tuesday. Tuesday is the four-year anniversary of when Biden entered the 2020 race. We're told the timing could change, but the decision to run, alone, run again is a done deal. A new poll from the Associated Press shows only 47% of Democrats want Biden to run again, though it's an improvement, a big one, from January when that number was only 37% of Democrats. And more than 80% of Dems say they would either definitely or probably support Biden in the general election if he's a nominee. All right, we'll continue on with that story. And now we want to talk about new details this morning in the shooting at a Louisville, Kentucky bank that was earlier this month. You'll recall that the gunman was killed by police after fatally shooting five of his co-workers and leaving a rookie officer in critical condition. Law enforcement sources now say he left behind extensive notes revealing part of his goal on that day. Senior correspondent Omar Jimenez here with us now. Omar, what are you learning? He was trying to prove some point here? Yeah, that's what two law enforcement sources are, are telling CNN, that there were extensive notes left, one of which was found on his body after he was killed in a shootout with police. And these notes show that at least part of the motivation here was to show how easy it was in the United States for someone dealing with a serious mental illness to get an assault weapon. And we know this gun was purchased legally uh, about a week before this shooting actually unfolded. Now, we've reached out to the family attorney on this latest update. We haven't heard back, but the family has said they are testing him for CTE, which some symptoms could be, you know, loss of impulse control, aggression, though it's not just limited to CTE. And all of it circling around the question on multiple fronts, people are trying to answer why. Hmm. Yeah. yeah. Do we have an update on the officer, Nicholas Wilt? He was shot in the head. Yeah, well, for starters, he is in uh, critical but stable condition, meaning that his vital signs are, are good, which is, which is obviously a good thing. But earlier this week, he was diagnosed with pneumonia while he's continuing to recover. So he's been transferred to a new hospital, uh, a specialist to deal with that diagnosis, according to the Louisville Metro Police Foundation. Um, and he remains the only patient who was hospitalized and survived this shooting to still be in the hospital. So obviously, everybody monitoring uh, his condition pretty closely. Omar, thank you for the reporting very much. Thanks a lot, Omar. In just hours, prosecutors in New Mexico are set to drop all charges against Alec Baldwin in the 2021 deadly Rust film set shooting. A source familiar with the investigation tells CNN that prosecutors made the decision after new evidence showed somebody modified the gun. 
The source says that leaves open the possibility that Baldwin didn't pull the trigger, something he has repeatedly claimed, including during an interview with our very own Chloe Malas. And Chloe joins us now. Uh, also with her is Scott Kasha. He is a freelance stunt coordinator uh, and armorer. We appreciate both of you joining us. Good morning. Chloe, I'm going to start with you. There's something that he has been claiming since the very beginning. Tell us about this new evidence. So. Yeah, I want you to listen to what Alec Baldwin told me, and he also spoke to George Stephanopoulos at ABC and said the same thing, maintaining just that. I never once said, never, that the gun went off in my hand automatically. I always said I pulled the hammer back. And I pulled it back as far as I could. I never took a gun and pointed at somebody and clicked the ha- thing. And then I let go of the hammer of the gun and the gun goes off. I let go of the hammer of the gun and the gun goes off. At the moment. The decisive that was the moment. moment the gun went off, yeah. That was the moment the gun went off. It wasn't in the script for the trigger to be pulled. Well, the trigger wasn't pulled. I didn't pull the trigger. So no. you never pulled the trigger? No, 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 no. I, I would never point a gun at anyone and pull a trigger at them, never. So this is... A fascinating development because let's go back to the FBI report. Right. The FBI does a forensics a forensics report, made headlines everywhere. They said absolutely not. The only way that this prop gun could have fired around would be if someone pulled the trigger, right? But with this new information, a source telling me that the DA has that shows that the gun was modified, which could potentially mean that the FBI report could be wrong, mm-hmm. that the gun could have fired, just like Alex said, he pulled the hammer back and it went off. Now, that doesn't answer the fact as to why was the gun modified? Who modified the gun? How did live rounds get on set? And the big question that I want to know is now that we are seeing the dismissal of charges pending further investigation by the New Mexico DA, could we see charges against anybody else? Such a good question. Let's bring Scott into this conversation as well. I mean, I didn't even know what a, what is it called? A hammer hammer is, but this is what Alec Baldwin kept saying, is that he just pulled back the hammer and released the hammer, never pulled the trigger. Is there any world in which a modified gun could discharge with just that being done? Absolutely. So modern firearms have safeties built in. So if you pull the hammer back and release it, it won't fire. this gun is modified, so I don't. I haven't looked at the gun, and again, I'm not a gunsmith. I'm an armor and a stunt coordinator and former police officer. Uh, you, you in theory, uh, old school guns, you could pull the hammer back a, a slight amount and then have it strike the firing pin, strike the primer, and then the gun could discharge. So, if this is in fact modified, I, I tend, you know, I don't know for sure, but his story is plausible in in my uh, in my experience and expertise. How is the question is we've been asking all along, though, Scott, how does a hot gun get on a set? How how does live how do live rounds get into a gun on a movie set? So two two equations here. First of all, the live rounds. I always say there should never be live rounds and blanks on the same zip code, let alone the same movie set. Uh, It's my understanding that they the armor because they found fingerprints on live rounds of hers at the scene. Uh, she knew there were live rounds. It's not hard to tell if you know what you're doing. And she, you know, it, it supposedly had some experience. Uh, it's not hard to tell the difference between a live round and a blank. So production should have been shot, shut down or anything with firearms should have been shut down immediately. An inventory should have been done of every single round on that set. Now, 
there are practices that are used by certain armors, and I do not agree with it. They use unmodified weapons, which I blows my mind because it using a modified weapon prevents things like this from happening. These modified weapons, most of them, you cannot even put a live round in. And if you did somehow get a live round into that uh, chamber, you pull the trigger and the gun basically blows up in your hand is what would happen. Uh, there's kind of a plate which um, gives you kind of some back pressure. Uh, so this easily could have prevented, and I don't know why a live gun was live gun or live round was used on on this set. I, it blows my mind. I also just want to point out something. You know, this is such a momentous legal victory as of right now, although pending further investigation by Alec Baldwin's legal team, because I just want to point out that charges were were brought at the end of January. In less than two and a half months, you're seeing a dismissal. This coming after the special prosecutor, Andrea Reeb, criticized him, saying that he was a big city, big shot attorney. And here he now got her to be removed from the case, had the firearm enhancement dropped. Right. So reducing Alex's potential prison time from five years to 18 months. Same for Hannah Gutierrez, Reed, the armorer. And now you're seeing this dismissal. So, you know, this is a big moment for them. And clearly they have been working for 18 months towards this. And then the prosecutor, the, the former prosecutor in an email saying, can I help you out? Right. Because this would help with my reelection. She was running for a House of Representatives in the state of New Mexico. And there is a law there that says you cannot be a special prosecutor and be in the House of Representatives. You cannot hold both jobs. So she was disqualified. And then she called him a big shot attorney. But you know what? Clearly you might need a big shot attorney. Right. Yeah. That's Kasha. Thank you. Chloe Malas, thank you, as thank you. always. Appreciate it. New York State education officials have voted to prohibit public schools from using or displaying indigenous team names, logos, or mascots. Schools must eliminate the imagery by the start of the 2024-2025 school year or risk penalties like losing state aid. This has gotten a lot of attention. Paula Sandoval is following all of it. This decision is getting mixed reaction across New York State. What is at the core of it? Why? Poppy Dot, it's even dividing some committees, too. The National Congress of American Indians, they actually track some of the numbers, and they say that there are still about 50 school systems throughout New York State that use such mascots. In fact, spent some time in one of them in Long Island yesterday. They're defending their so-called chief mascot, saying that it celebrates the rich history of their community and saying that these new policies, it's an overreach of the state. So expect a possible legal fight there. As for some of these Native groups... They say they've been in a legal fight of their own going all the way back to 1950. For some, they're a source of school pride. But for tribal nations, they're the reason behind a decades-long battle. And this week, a win. New York State education officials voted unanimously to ban their public schools from using indigenous team names, logos, and mascots. They have until the fall of 2024 to eliminate such imagery or risk losing state funding. It's long overdue. I mean, this latest push is just um, the newest push, but we've had community members fighting um, for these changes over the last several decades. Brian Polite is chairman of New York's Shinnecock Nation. Chiefs, warriors, Indians. Polite joins the National Congress of American Indians in calling such mascots inappropriate stereotypes that dehumanize Native people. Well, a lot of these mascots and logos are Hollywood depictions on what they think Native Americans should look like. Um, and other times it's sensitive uh, items and cultural references that we don't want paraded around on the football field. 
The ban is likely to affect schools throughout New York, prompting some pushback. Long Island's Massapequa Public Schools out with this letter this week defending their chief mascot as historic and informing parents that they are investigating all options with legal counsel. Also on Long Island, Patrick Pizzarelli, who leads Nassau County's interscholastic sports. He predicts future funding issues if athletic departments are forced to pay for rebranding their programs, uniforms, even their sporting venues. I understand, and I get it, okay? But uh, you got to give these districts some money. You can't just expect them to do it, and maybe even more time. You know, right now, by the end of 25, I believe, it's supposed to at least be started. I'm not sure it has to be done by then. But, you know, you got to help them because you don't want to hurt other kids to fix the problem. The head of the Tonawanda City Schools near Buffalo also bracing for the cost of compliance. We're a district that's going to comply and we're going to do uh, very good work working with our, our stakeholders, our community, and again, most importantly, the students in determining what our next steps are. Renaming won't be necessary for schools that bear the name of an indigenous tribe. Educators are also still allowed to use indigenous imagery in their curriculum. We should mention there are potential exemptions here. The new regulations do say that some schools can keep their mascots if they enter into an agreement with a tribe that's recognized by the federal government. Poppy Don, we looked, haven't identified any yet. But look, we just heard from Chairman Polite just now saying he understands that there are some school systems that may see this as respecting some of their culture, some of their communities. But he says, look, there are ways to do this. Attend some of the community events that they invite the public to. Uh, be involved in some other programs. Uh, there are so many ways that doesn't necessarily mean parading some of their uh, mm -hmm. figures onto the football field. I'm glad you covered this. Yeah. Thank you. Thanks, Thank you very much, Paula. I appreciate it. Yeah. Well, this week, Fox News paid a historic price for spreading lies about the 2020 election, and now a second company is demanding even more money than Dominion's $787 million settlement. The top lawyer from Smartmatic is going to join us live as the company pursues a multi-billion dollar lawsuit against Fox. More CNN this morning to come after the break. So this is the number that made historic headlines this week. Look at that. $787,500,000, the cost of airing a lie. That is the amount that Fox News will pay Dominion Voting Systems in a settlement that was struck on Tuesday. But Dominion isn't the only company suing Fox for spreading lies related to the 2020 election. Smartmatic, another voting machine company, is suing Fox and other defendants for $2.7 billion. In a statement after the Dominion settlement was announced, a lawyer for Smartmatic said Dominion's litigation exposed some of the misconduct and damage caused by Fox's disinformation campaign. Smartmatic will expose the rest. Fox's response via statement was, quote, Smartmatic's damages claim uh, are implausible, claims are implausible, disconnected from reality and on its face intended to chill First Amendment freedoms. So joining us now, an attorney for Smartmatic, Eric Connolly. Thank you for joining us, Mr. Connolly. We appreciate it. Well, good morning. Thank you for having me on. So before we have our conversation, I think it's important to hear some of what uh, the folks at Fox were saying about Smartmatic. Let's play it and then we'll talk. The Dominion machines run the Softmatic software and, or uh, parts of the key code of it, and that is what allows them to manipulate the votes in any way the operators choose to manipulate them. 
The software that they use is done by a company called Smartmatic. It's a company that was founded by Chavez <laughs> and by Chavez's uh, two, two allies who still own, own it. It's been used to cheat in elections in South America. So, Eric, uh, I understand that you are, you find, you, you, why are you laughing? Uh, all that is absolutely false. There's not a shred of truth to that. It's, uh, it, it's pretty crazy to actually just hear that. Okay, so then Smartmatic has accused Fox um, attorney Rudy Giuliani, uh, Sidney Powell, and host Lou Dobbs, Maria Bartiromo, Jeanine Pirro of intentionally lying about Smartmatic. How do you prove that this was intentional? Well, you can start with the fact that that's inherently implausible. Everything they just said just could not have happened, and they know it didn't happen. So we've been doing this for a long time, and there has not been one shred of evidence, not one shred of evidence to support anything that they were publishing. That's, it was all just lies, and they knew it was lies when it came out. Do you believe the Dominion settlement has made your case even stronger? I don't know if the Dominion settlement is particularly relevant to where our case is going. Uh, Dominion was a company that operated largely in North America, and I think the damages that they were recovering is reflective of some of the damages that they suffered in the United States and in North America, as well as the reputational harm throughout the country. Smartmatic is a global company. We operate in the United States, but we operate globally, and we're actually the only company that can compete globally for election business everywhere. So the Dominion damages, and where you look at the Dominion settlement, that's a starting point for analyzing kind of where the case can go, but our damages are on a global scale, not just limited to the United States. Okay, so let's talk about that because your lawsuit against Fox and, and the other defendants substantially more than the amount uh, that Dominion has been seeking. I think Dominion, their valuation was about 80 million. I'm not exactly sure where your valuation is. I couldn't find, but you, uh, the $250,000 per year in revenue, $250 billion per year in revenue. Million, right? Correct? For you. So why so then? We are... No, I apologize. So then why then is Smartmatic entitled to $2.7 billion if it's $250 million per year in revenue? So a couple things to keep in consideration. We are looking for recovery of the enterprise value loss. Our company was worth over $3 billion before this disinformation campaign came along. And now we are obviously worth significantly less. So the recovery we are looking for is to be reflective of the value of our company that we we lost as a result of this disinformation. And whenever you're measuring these types of damages, you have to look at it at the total opportunities that we've lost. And the opportunities that we lost, and this is what we are experiencing day after day, it's global. We are suffering these consequences in Asia. We're suffering these consequences in Africa. We're suffering these consequences in South America and in Europe. So when you take into consideration damages, you look at the overall damage done to us globally, and then you look at how it impacted our enterprise value. And that's where our experts are coming out. Specifically, what was uh, damage globally? How so? Is it reputational? Absolutely. So Smartmatic, before this disinformation, had a global reputation as being the election technology company that you go to if you want a secure, reliable, and accurate voting process. They have a perfect audit trail. They've processed over 6 billion votes and they've never had a security issue once, not one time. Now, their reputation globally is a company that has rigged elections. 
just imagine what that does. If you are an election technology company, your reputation is everything to you. And that fundamental shift in the narrative of who Smartmatic is has cost them contracts with companies. It has cost them the opportunity to even bid on contracts with countries. So this is essentially undermining what this family built for 20 years. I don't know how you can really put a, a dollar amount on that. You said that you wouldn't accept anything less than what Dominion got, $787 million. Why do you say that? The decision ultimately is up to the families, uh, Don, in terms of what they want to do. My job as their lawyer is to simply give them guidance and advice on this. Um, I don't know how I could look at them and tell them that they should accept less when the damages that they suffered were global and were so significantly more. In the Dominion settlement with Fox, there was no requirement for Fox to make an apology nor a retraction. Would you walk away from an offer from Fox if it didn't include an on-air retraction or apology? Because that, as I understand, you told my colleague Jake Tapper, you want a retraction and you want an apology. Would you walk away from an offer that didn't include those? Whenever you think about the settlement, um, if that's where these kinds of cases go, you have to think about whether the company is gonna be in this business for the long term. Smartmatic is in this business for the long term. Their reputation has been injured and if you don't have a retraction, if you don't have an apology, it is so much more difficult for them to get back to where they were previously. They don't want to exit the election business. This is what they've spent their lives doing. So I think when you're talking about a settlement, if you go down that road, I think you need to have something in there that will help them publicly get back the messaging that they wanted to be on, which is we are the company you go to for secure, accurate, and reliable voting. If there is a settlement, you would get to decide in some way what a retraction or an apology would look like on air. What would that look like to you at this point? Too soon for me to tell what that would look like. Um, that would be part of any negotiations we do and we're, we're not close to that. All right. Eric Connolly, thank you so much. I appreciate you joining us here on CNN. Thank you very much. Appreciate your time. Thank you. It was really, really interesting. Yeah, because as in a settlement, you, they get to decide some of the languages can say, we would like you to say this on the air. We would like you to say it as this many times and that many times, and they get to negotiate. Yeah. But your question was right. Are you willing to walk Are away? Are you willing to walk away? Or this thing so, goes to trial, yeah. by the way. Or, or it goes to trial. But, I mean, they, they are... Their valuation, according to him, uh, a multi-billion dollar company. Right. That wasn't the case with Dominion. So we'll they stand to make more money if they actually go to court and win. And we also, you know, when you talk about this attorney, what? Uh, <laughs> law school graduate, um, we need to talk about Sullivan because. Um, New York yeah, Times versus Sullivan. New York Times versus Sullivan and yeah. what this means, because there is a, um, a momentum to move towards trying to get rid of Sullivan to make it easier. Changing the actual changing the bar. malice bar threshold. Right. I have a lot of thoughts on that. Yeah. We'll talk at brunch yeah. with our mint juleps. With our mint juleps and our okay. spring wear. A political standoff over the nation's debt limit is threatening to tank the economy. And now some Democrats are urging President Biden to negotiate as Republicans demand huge spending cuts. Wisconsin Senator Tammy Baldwin here in studio. Oh, wow. We're so glad she's joining us. We'll see if she agrees with those Democrats next. When did she sneak in? Welcome to 
CNN this morning. President Biden is set to announce his bid for a second term as soon as next week. Some members of his own party are starting to question his handling of a major pressing issue, the standoff over raising the debt limit. Some Democrats are anxious over Biden's refusal to negotiate with Republicans. I think I think Joe Biden should be talking to Kevin McCarthy, even if those conversations right now prove nothing productive. My fear is that this gets pushed all the way to the last moment. And then if we're at the last moment and things fall apart, we go off, we go off the cliff. We're here to talk, communicate, negotiate. So at least do it. At least they put something on the table. Said put it on the table. They put something on the table. That's Joe Manchin, Democratic senator, referring to House Speaker Kevin McCarthy's proposal this week to raise the debt ceiling by $1.5 trillion in exchange for a host of domestic spending cuts and conservative political and policy priorities. The White House has for months insisted it's not going to negotiate, right? They only want a clean debt ceiling bill, instead calling on McCarthy to raise the debt ceiling with no conditions. That is not good enough for Joe Manchin, who said of Biden's strategy right now, quote, this signals a deficiency of leadership and it must change. It's quite a quote from a fellow Democrat. Joining us now is another Democrat, Senator Tammy Baldwin of Wisconsin. I should note she just announced her plans to run for re-election in 2024. Morning. Good morning. So nice to have you in person. It's great to join you. What do you think? Do you agree with Joe Manson? This is basically an abdication of leadership? Absolutely not. You know, there is a place and time for negotiations. That's our annual budget and our annual appropriations process. Um, we cannot afford to default. The default uh, implications for uh, people paying their mortgages and, uh, you know, their, on their retirements, it, it is almost cataclysmic if we were to default. And even to have the brinksmanship that brings us to the verge of that is so dangerous for our economy. It has uh, incredible man ramifications. So I just plead with uh, uh, Speaker McCarthy, don't default. Don't put our well, people through takes, that. Right? They say it takes two to tango. That's it takes right. two to default. So are you pleading with the White House to do the same and sit down with McCarthy? Because this bill would, I know you don't like it, but it would avoid default. You know, I, first of all, I'm not even sure uh, that they have gathered, the, garnered the support, but there's a very uh, clear path. And I think Democrats, including the president, have been clear since day one that we can't afford to default, but there is a time and a place called the budget and the appropriations yeah. process for negotiating these incredibly important issues. I hear you, but if nothing happens in two months, we could default and this would avoid that. I, is it a starting place for the president to sit down? Do you think the president should sit down with Speaker McCarthy? Because it's not just Joe Manchin who you heard there. CNN has new reporting overnight that it is several, if not more, Democrats have privately told CNN that the White House position to not budge is unsustainable. I think it. it I think there's absolutely uh, room for a clean uh, uh, resolution in the House of Representatives to not default on our debts. That's we, not Americans a negotiation. Pay their, That's Americans not... pay their bills, and our country needs to do the same. This is debt that's already been incurred, much of it under the previous presidential administration, and we pay our bills. So don't negotiate. That's not a negotiation to only say clean. There's so much room for negotiation, including leverage for that negotiation after uh, okay. we take care of okay. the... We have an annual budget process, an annual appropriations process, and they have leverage in that. There's no reason why we uh, shouldn't sit down and resolve these big issues, but not while we put 
Americans at risk of higher mortgage payments, uh, jeopardizing people's retirement security, and all the other things that flow from a possible default. So it's not worth negotiating to avoid it? Oh, we will, uh, we must now, avoid negotiating it now. by not defaulting, yes. Let's move on yes. to the issue of abortion. Um, you are the lead sponsor of a bill. It's called the Women's Health Protection Act of 2023. This is federal legislation to guarantee access to abortion everywhere in the country. The Supreme Court has a deadline, and that's 11.59 p.m. tonight, to consider whether it will uphold the lower court, putting a lot of restrictions on mifepristone, medication abortion, or not. If the Supreme Court does not rule in, your, in the view the Democrats want, and if it upholds the lower court, what actually can you do? Yeah, so let us, first of all, look at what that lower court did. It reversed an approval of a medication that was 23 years ago. The ruling uh, was devoid of science. It appears clear to me that it's part and parcel of a hard right effort to ban access to abortion nationwide following the uh, reversal of Roe versus Wade, which has left this issue to the states. And uh, we must pass the Women's Health Protection Act, and we have to build towards that time so that we are not either in a situation like we are in Wisconsin, where uh, our state has the oldest criminal abortion ban in the country. It was passed in 1849, and you didn't hear me wrong, 1849, a year after statehood. That is the law of the land in Wisconsin right now. So on all fronts, including reversing this uh, uh, Texas judge, um, we have to work to regain the rights and freedoms uh, that have been lost, where we have half of America with fewer rights than their mothers and grandmothers right now. Your your bill, I read, read through it, and you talk about... Um, viability and you yes. talk about sort of what stage at with you think there should be guarantees for abortion in in all states uh, some republican lawmakers say the democrats almost encourage late-term abortions this is something you address later term abortions in your bill i want you to listen to what senator tim scott who looks very likely to be officially running for president what he said on cbs last week what I've heard so far and what I've seen in the Senate aren't proposals, but votes from the left trying to figure out how to continue their campaign towards late-term abortions. I wonder what you say to that. I just, it's a total falsehood. And I think about, uh, you know, what's happening right now in the state of Wisconsin, where, uh, uh, you know, a, a miscarriage has occurred and uh, the standard course of care uh, would be uh, an abortion. Uh, but we are having women uh, have to suffer through fever, sepsis before they can get the care they need. In fact, in some places, it's like lawyers of, in hospitals are practicing medicine, trying to figure out whether uh, somebody is, uh, their life is actually in danger or not. Uh, to in order to permit the care to happen in our state. It is devastating um, where you have, um, you know, families with uh, wanted, uh, wanted babies and there's a miscarriage, water breaks, uh, some sort of uh, tragedy, and they're not able to access the care they need uh, to protect their health and their lives. And that should never be the case in America. 
uh, we need to regain these rights and freedoms. Senator Tammy Baldwin, thank you. It's nice to have you in the studio. Good to be here. Appreciate it very much, Don. All right, thank you. Crucial and creative efforts underway now to remove carbon from the sea and the air we breathe. CNN's chief climate correspondent, Mr. Bill Weir, taking a sip of coffee over there. He's gonna explain the whole story next. Did you bring enough for the whole class? I did, and I only got one little bit. (laughs) Video of carbon emissions filling our studio right now. Look, it's all over. You got video everywhere. Uh, Just like it fills the air, we breathe. Scientists say that it's no longer enough just to cut back on fossil fuels to curb climate change. Instead, we have to pull billions of tons of carbon dioxide from the air over the next quarter century. In the latest episode of The Whole Story with Anderson Cooper airing this Sunday, CNN's chief climate change chief climate correspondent, I guess you can say change as well, Bill Weir (laughs) met up with some of the players in this trillion-dollar race to remove carbon from the sea and sky, one that even uses artificial whale poop. Listen. One pod can gobble up nutrients from the deep and poop them across hundreds of square miles of ocean surface, supercharging the bottom of the food chain. Within three to four days in that area, you might have the whole area covered with phytoplankton. And then within five days of that, that whole area becomes full of fish. And since the biggest can weigh 28 tons, when they die, they take massive amounts of carbon Godzilla to the ocean depths and could be doing millions of dollars worth of carbon removal for free. We would say whaling has to stop completely, but you can catch as much fish as you like because we're going to return the oceans to billions of fish in this process. So CNN's chief climate correspondent, Bill Weir, joins us. Now, I was just saying to you the thing, I live in a, an old whaling town in Sag yeah. Harbor. It's an old whaling town we're talking about. Listen, I'm, I'm, people, I'm, people don't care what you call it. If it's artificial whale poop or whatever, does it help in the fight against Does it help? Change? It helps. So this is Sir David King. He was the UK's top science advisor for a decade. He runs the Center for Climate Repair at Cambridge. And I went there thinking they would have all these amazing ideas for new forms of energy or nuclear fusion. And their top ideas are artificial whale poop and spritzing yachts that will spray a fine mist in the air at the North Pole and refreeze the Arctic three months a year. Those are their big ideas. But this marine biomass regeneration, we lost the ocean's fertilizer pumps when we killed 95% of the big baleen whales. They go down deep, they scoop up the nutrients, they poop them at the surface. That's what gives the oceans life. The oceans give us breath. And so thinking about how we tackle this trillion ton monster of excess carbon we call carbon Godzilla in the hour, people are coming at it from different ways. Some are building machines, some want to use artificial whale poop, which is really volcanic ash. Some think we've gone too far, we've waited too long, and we need to spray sunscreen in the sky to turn down the sun for a couple of years and buy us time. So we get into all these big radical ideas. For petroleum, you know that we hmm. use whales. That's right. For fuel. That's it. Yeah. We, That's we used to burn whales for right. light, exactly. Yeah. And at a certain point we thought, Maybe we should find something else. And then there's kerosene and then there's gasoline. And now we're at that same moment. But the the, the fossil fuel interests are awful powerful. Can any of these solutions really make up 
for anything if we don't radically change our behavior? No, that's it. None of these solutions matter. And I think a lot of um, environmentalists have hated the idea of carbon capture because the oil companies used it as a fig leaf to continue drilling and pumping and doing business as usual. It needs both. But the latest reports are we've kicked this can down the road so long that there is now a trillion tons of excess carbon that has to be pulled out of the sea and sky. And that's Train cars and guys in hard hats and shipping ports devoted to this. It's building the the entire petroleum industry in reverse in record time. That's the challenge Mm. right now. But there's this unbelievable wave of innovation out there. And we just touched on a few dozen ideas in this special. I came away with so much hope and and invigorated wonder. Good, good. A little less worry. Good. Wonder (laughs) over worry for now. Bill Weir, we cannot wait to see it. Thank Thank you you and your team. You can watch Bill's full report for the whole story this Sunday, 8 p.m. Eastern, right here on CNN. The Oakland A's are Vegas bound. Does that make them the Vegas A's now? Or Nevada A's? (laughs) Harry Enten has this morning's number. The Aces. That's perfect. Big blow for the hometown fans of the Oakland A's. It's looking like the Major League Baseball team will be moving to Vegas in 2027. The Athletic reports that the team has agreed to buy land near the Vegas Strip where they will build a new ballpark. The A's are set to join the other pro teams that Sin City now has. The Raiders famously left Oakland for Vegas in 2020. In 2017, they got an NHL team with the Golden Knights, and all of these moves, of course, involve big bucks. Harry Anton is dancing. He's also our senior data reporter. you got to get the, do the Elvis leg. I can't do it. You can do it. You're much, I, I don't have dance moves, let's put it that way. I'll just say that. Do we know they're definitely going? Uh, we're not 100% sure that they're going, but it looks pretty likely at this point. And that brings us to this morning's number. And that is $19.5 billion because part of the reason that they're perhaps leaving Oakland was that they couldn't really get the financing for the stadium, right? I think sort of the last straw was uh, federal subsidies that didn't come through. But public financing of MLB and NFL stadiums, $19.5 billion since 1990. It's very possible that Las Vegas will, in fact, put some money in. And this is something that has certainly been climbing. So this is the inflation-adjusted public money for the median new MLB or NFL stadium. Look at this. In the 2020s, look how much. $750 million for the median stadium. That's up from 2010, up from 2000, and well up from 1990 when it was just $281 million. And I think the question is, do these new stadiums actually generate an economic boom for the cities? Most studies say, uh-uh, no way. But hey, they do help team, money, team owners make a lot of money. Well, but how does the public feel about having to put money and pay for stadiums. They do not like oh. it. They don't like it. 60% in the average poll are opposed, just 26% favor. There's that 14% that don't know, but the clear majority are opposed. And keep in mind, even though I'm an avid sports fan, most folks aren't, just 12% are. Most are either a casual fan at 43% or 17%, they're not a fan. So the fact is, I don't know why, this, why the cities keep doing this, guys. Mm, that's a good question. That's a good question, right? Somebody do a report on it, like Harry Enten. (laughs) Harry, thank you. Thanks, Harry. Thank you. We'll be right back. They keep doing it because they want the stadium. Beneath the ocean, 
Coral reefs support a biodiverse community of marine life and protect our coastal areas, but these valuable ecosystems are threatened. This week, CNN Hero is committed to rebuilding coral reefs in the Florida Keys with the help of a community of divers. Meet Mike Goldberg. Coral reefs, without them, nothing is here. Simply put, they are what it is that brings the ecosystem together. Sadly, I've watched us lose that coral reef and the disappearance of that diverse marine ecosystem. Good, I care. Are we ready? Yeah. Yeah. Right, let's go down. But then he says, you know what, I'm going to do something. I truly believe we're going to be successful with this restoration work. I see things every time I go in the water that give me hope. I love being a part of it. I wake up every day and say, look what I get to do. For more on Mike's mission, visit CNNHeroes.com. While you're there, you can nominate your hero. He's a hero. Speaking of missions, what? our work is done for this week. Our work is we accomplished. done. Mission accomplished. Did you have a good week? I had a great week. I'm yeah. so glad that everyone was with us. You have a good weekend planned? Yeah. Volunteering with the kiddos? Earth Day stuff with the kids. I am attempted. Now everyone's going to hold me accountable. I'm supposed to run the Brooklyn Half Marathon on Sunday, which the schedule in has made shoes. it in these shoes, <laughs> which I've kept on, which this schedule has made it hard to train for. So I'm going to run walk it. How's that? Well, as long as you complete it. Yeah. I want to cross the finish line. That's it. What about you? Thank you. That's it. I'm going to just eat, sleep, and be merry. <laughs> <laughs> and we'll see you Monday. Caitlin will we, be back. Yes, we hope you have a great weekend. Thank you for joining us this week, everyone. CNN's New Central starts right now. That is it for this episode of CNN This Morning. You can check out our lineup of podcasts and showcasts at cnn.com slash audio or in your favorite podcast app. Thanks for listening. When you work, you work next level. And when you play, you play next level. And when it's time to sleep, Sleep Number smart beds are designed to embrace your uniqueness, providing you with high-quality sleep every night. Sleep next level. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, the Queen Sleep Number C4 smart bed is only $1,599. Save $300 for a limited time, only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Prices higher in Alaska and Hawaii. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com.